<laughs> those little, oh. those little, t- <laughs> this is the ones that barely cover the eyeball. The little you know, tiny just, ones, like, yeah. He just goes, <laughs> <laughs> who is this guy? What's he got kind of? I always thought of those as like speedos for your eyeballs. Yes, 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 right? exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and like guys are typically wearing true. speedos when they do the tanning booth thing too, right? Yeah. That's true, yeah. It goes, it goes hand in hand. Thong speedo. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, I've been, th- like this has happened to me multiple times, but I want to see what your guys' answers are. Because uh, I feel like we're all going to get different answers. So what physical feature have you guys been complimented on the most? And I can go first if you want me to. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> okay. So I'll, I'll let you guys think of your answers here. So the physical feature that I've been complimented on the most, and this has happened from multiple people, is my nose. And I always felt like that was such a random thing random. to compliment someone. It's like, you'd be like, you know what? I think your your nose is really cute. And that's that's what I've been told multiple times is I have a Maybe because nose. for a guy, like you kind of have a petite-ish nose. We have that, see, we have that nose, and I gave that nose to all of my kids, too. But, of course, like, I don't get complimented for it because I'm a girl, and so I'm supposed to have a cute petite nose. What is it about the nose? Because for me, noses are kind of just all look the same, at least in my opinion. But, like, what is it about? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Some are, like, big or wide or, you know, like, somehow. I guess I I don't really notice it. I don't know. Look up Jimmy Durante. You're going to start. (laughs) Yeah, look up Jimmy Durante. What's her face? Barbara Streisand. (laughs) Any one of those will work. (laughs) Yeah, so so noses. Uh, Yeah, that's funny because, like, I, you know, my... I, I guess I don't get complimented on that. I get complimented for one of two things, depending on who's who's talking to me. Okay. What their intent I get, is. Yeah. I, can, I get either complimented for my eyes or my ass. Nice. <laughs> Physical feature. <laughs> yes. So eyes and booty. Um, right. Let's see. I see how he see how he focused on the booty part. Mm-hmm. He's mm-hmm. like, booty. Oh, yeah. Eyes. eyes also eyes. Yeah. Also eyes. Yeah. Eyes. That's the demographic right there that you're talking mm-hmm. about. Yeah, just boom, booty. <laughs> I would say, um, for me, the one, the two that I get complimented most on, or the one primarily, would be my eyes, which surprised me. Mm. Uh, you know, I'm very surprised by your answer because I thought for sure I was going to be able to predict it, and I thought you were going to say your hair because That's literally e- every single person at work has commented on your hair at some point. That's They're interesting. Like, oh, I love it. You should just keep growing it out. I guess yeah. you're. Yeah, you're right. I, I, that was. Um, yeah, that's true. How long is it now? Is it like a little bit past your shoulders? Yeah, it, it is. That's funny. I I feel like it's so, been so much more recent, but I did grow my hair. It's been like three years now with my hair this long. But um, it's to the point where I don't even remember what you look like without long hair. That's funny. I, like, this I, is your norm now. Right. And until I go back into like my Instagram, old Instagram posts, I forget that I what I look like with, with short hair. That's something that I've learned to do as well is that when people compliment you, just accept it. Mm-hmm. You don't yeah. have to like brag about it or anything, but just be like, you know what? Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate yeah, that. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Right, right, because it is you, and that's just how this person feels about about you. So it is what it is. You know, actually, I came up with one final question while you guys were coming up with your answers here. And I just think like this is this is so much fun, <laughs> <laughs> diving Go a little bit it. deeper into our personalities. Mm-hmm. So, if anything, what have you guys gotten out of this podcast? With this being like a milestone anniversary episode. And we've been doing this for a long time now, you know, a couple of years. So what have wow. you guys gotten out of doing this podcast? 
I feel like I've definitely, well, I mean, of course I enjoy like spending time with my little bruh, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, um, like connecting with friends and family. That's been really fun. Yeah. And, you know, revisiting movies that I have loved or coming to love movies that I didn't quite love before, I guess. Mm. Uh, but one thing I've gained, I guess, is a little bit, a little bit more uh, acceptance for <laughs> the sound of my own voice. Mm, okay. I can tolerate it better now, I suppose. Still, I, I'll, I won't listen to the ones that I'm in as much. <laughs> How about you, Michael? Yeah, for me, what I've gotten from this podcast is uh, a deeper appreciation for others perspectives on the movie that we're discussing every everything you guys input for me um when i was younger it always felt like this sort of like one-upmanship kind of thing where i've got to have like like i was saying before we were recording the last like, opinion gotta have the, the, the right the, the 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 tidbit of wisdom that just knocks everybody else's socks off or something like that as if such a thing was possible but anymore <laughs> for me it's like um just seeing another facet of something that I, I didn't have before. And, and it, right. So r rather than looking at these insights as though it says, it's saying that I'm not seeing these uh, because I didn't see that too at the beginning. Therefore, like I'm dumb or something or like, Oh no, I, I'm failing at life. <laughs> Instead, it's more like <laughs> um, being in this podcast. It's helped me to, to build on these thoughts that these insights that you guys have and to kind of take them and, and, and infuse them into the movie for me. So now, now I get this, um, yeah, multifaceted way. So that's what I've taken from one of the things I've, I've gotten from this. Yeah, new perspectives and stuff. Yeah, appreciating new perspectives and um, both of your approaches to your unique approaches to to um, analyzing these movies and things and especially um, Eric, your questions. I always appreciate uh, the quality of the questions and your this is something we discussed before, but your your You've listened back in editing these episodes, and in doing so, you've you've paid attention to times when perhaps you were uh, talking more, you thought, and you would rather have asked more questions. And so, I've noticed that you've done that. And, and again, this it's constant improvement. So, I appreciate that as well. That's one of the things I was actually going to say was one to go along with what you were saying. I feel like I've I've also learned so much more about these movies through the perspective of others, you know, and also doing more research myself. And then um, I guess this is kind of similar to what Steph was saying. I've gotten more comfortable expressing myself and being more vulnerable. Being on the show and creating the show, I, I just felt like as a, a wee lad, I would have never <laughs> expected to be on something like this, you know, to have Same. our own show, much <laughs> less something that's available to the general public. Like I would have died from embarrassment. <laughs> right. Goes no, to show so how true. far we've come. I think I feel the same, uh, what you mentioned about being vulnerable. I think there were many times where I didn't want to, to be vulnerable and express like if a movie made me cry or, um, talking about love especially with the last one with la la land and things like that my husband listens to the podcast and this is amongst he's he's a you know a movie freak like you guys too and as i've met i'm sure i've mentioned uh he you know he took like film history and stuff like that and so he listens to like other i guess bigger 
quote unquote air quotes here bigger movie mm-hmm. podcasts and, and whatnot and so when i found out that he was listening to ours at first i was like no don't listen to me <laughs> stop it i mean he I, I found out that he actually enjoys it and i'm glad for that and That's i've cool. gotten more used to him listening so hey husband shout out <laughs> shout out how you doing everybody welcome to affliction autos podcast episode 28 our anniversary episode our second anniversary episode to be exact my name is eric <laughs> and the other voices occupying your head this time are a proud mother of three lab geek my sister and co-host stephanie Woo. smurf aka smurf today <laughs> and a man of many trades good friend colleague and co-host that one guy michael hello love thank you to all, all the listeners out there for joining us as always New episodes drop on the first Saturday of each month, 5 a.m. Pacific. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. That also includes YouTube, where you can find us at Affliction Autos Podcast. So please give us a like and subscribe. Steph, Michael, what is this? What are we about? Well, my friends, I'll tell you. Here on Affliction Isles podcast, we mainly talk about films that range from mind-numbing to mind-blowing. We also cover TV shows and other forms of media. Of course, we will be getting into spoilers here, and there will be only the healthiest amount of expletives. You have been warned. If you ain't ready, then get ready, because in this anniversary episode, we have a very special topic that we're covering today. We will be discussing the powerful science fiction epic interstellar released in 2014 directed by none other than christopher nolan the master masterful dang ah and you were saying that this was also a tearjerker for you michael a lot Mm. of emotions yeah i remember seeing this with a homie at the time and um and i just remember like it's so it was so immersive and it was it just it just pulls pulls you every which way tug at the heartstrings I remember I like 10 minutes after the movie, I remember I was still in that world. I remember sitting in the car with, with my homie and we were like, I was just like, I just let go. I just had to cry. I was just like, man, this was where I've been in this other world for feels like a lifetime, you know, three hours, three hours. Exactly. Yeah. I feel like this is what this could easily be one of those movies where on the way home, instead of talking about it, you guys are just kind of like quiet, just sitting there stunned, taking it in. That's it. That's it. It's a quiet car ride. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Unpacking it because because it is so complex as well. Not just the emotions being tied up in it, but all these these heady thoughts. You know, un- unpacking it, making connections to things because anything Christopher Nolan does has so many layers as well. So you're just really unpacking it. They're pretty complex. I'm mm-hmm. sure. Um, quick background: Christopher Nolan. This is his ninth directed film overall. Uh, after finishing up his Batman trilogy with The Dark Knight Rises. Only our second Nolan film since episode one, Tenant. Mm. Been waiting a long time to cover another one of his movies, so here we are. But you know, I wanted to save this one for a special occasion because, I don't know, this is just something that all three of us enjoyed. So I wanted to make sure that we could all get in on this and, and say our piece about it. Right, right. Well done. The premise for Interstellar was originally conceived by producer Linda Opst and theoretical physicist Kip Thorne, and um, Paramount Pictures picked up the project and wanted Steven Spielberg to direct originally. But by March 2007, Nolan was hired to 
sorry, Jonathan Nolan was hired to write the screenplay for the Paramount project. Mm. And so Jonathan Nolan was actually on board before Christopher was. Huh, go figure. The script took four years. Jonathan even studied relativity at the California Institute of Technology while writing it. Wow. So he, w- he put in the work. That's impressive. After Spielberg moved his production studio, DreamWorks, from Paramount to Walt Disney Studios in 2009, the film needed a new director, and that is where Christopher Nolan joined the project in 2012. Christopher chose specific elements from the vast array of ideas that Jonathan and Thorne presented, because from my understanding, there's just a lot in the original script. Christopher felt that he needed to fine-tune like certain elements, because he didn't feel that he could get across most of these ideas. So he Mm. wanted to pick and choose like specific elements and then really just focus in on those. Michael, you're saying that you left and you like sat and you thought and you cried or whatever. The first time I saw it, it was not in the theater. So I probably missed out on that experience. Right. But Mm. the first time I saw it, I was just confused and I was just like, I mean, I know I'm not dumb, but dang, I feel dumb. Right. (laughs) And (laughs) And, you know, mm. I was just kind of like, I, it, you know, it lost me at a certain point, which um, I mentioned before, and I'll mention again, um, in, in part three of my, of my three parts, I decided to rename part two to relativity. So part mm. one for me is the ghost where, you know, Murph is basically being haunted and then they get the coordinates to go to NASA. Part two is when Coop goes to space and, you know, they experience the relativity and they're pl- searching for planets. And then part three is the black hole part, which I call the black hole. I got lost in the black hole. <laughs> Big black hole. <laughs> mm. yep. So, you know, Christopher was was choosing specific elements to add into this final script, right? But uh, apparently Christopher kept in place Jonathan's conception of the first hour of the movie, which was set on a resource depleted earth in the near future. So all that was basically Jonathan's idea. Hmm. That's cool. Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah, I like it a lot. Yeah, and the, the way it all comes together in the end, you know? Ex- exactly. I think that it ties so many elements together early. So it's like, it, it begs for uh, several re-watchings, as any Christopher Nolan film would. But but um, the intro, I mean, just the, the, the whole ghost, as you said, the part one being the ghost. I kept having to pause the movie. I only, in the beginning, I only got like half hour into it. And I'd probably spent like an hour <laughs> and a half watching it. Because I would sit down and, you know, I'd take, I mean, it's a long movie, to too. It is, it is. So that's why it took me longer, but it was, it was a joy to, to find these, um, little gifts, you know, little, little treats here and there. Like, oh my gosh, like you're rewarded for having already seen it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm, I was definitely in an entirely different mindset this, this time when I watched it. And well, for me, I feel like that mindset was pay as, as close attention as I possibly can. So I don't miss anything so that I can understand (laughs) it, you know? And um, yeah. thankfully, I feel like I was able to accomplish that. I'm sure I've mentioned it in the past. I, I think I may have mentioned it in episode one, actually. But uh, my old coworker and I, Gillis, we were two big Hans Zimmer fans. And uh, sometimes while we were working, I would just have a playlist of Hans Zimmer, you know, playing in the background. And I think where I actually started to really give the composers the credit that they deserved because the music was just so amazing and it was almost like undeniable like i couldn't not listen to it i couldn't ignore it while i was watching the movie it was just so prominent so intense and so engaging 
the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Mm. Oh yeah, those themes are so fucking epic, right? Mm-hmm. And they're uh-huh. they're fantastic, and it, they perfectly so set good. the tone for those movies. That's where I, I discovered Hans Zimmer and fucking genius, dude. Like everything he does, mm-hmm. honestly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cannot say enough good things about the Hans, as Gillis and I would call them. <laughs> the Hans. That's great. This is actually a perfect opportunity because I know that you wanted to kind of save this this part of the discussion for once we start the episode. So we can dive a little bit deeper into the mindset. When I was mentioning before that this kind of felt like I was watching the movie for the first time right. was I think because of the fact that I hadn't seen this movie in a few years, I wasn't trying to just remember everything about the movie. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to go in and I'm going to let it tell it the story back to me, you know, even though I already know what's going to happen, but I was actually focusing on different things. So I was listening more intently to the conversations, to the little quips and like the one-off lines that were happening in the movie. And I was picking up on a lot more this time around body language I was picking up on Hmm. certain decisions to include scenes in this movie. I found kind of interesting, like for instance, to start the movie, uh, we're in the year 2067 and humanity is facing extinction following a global famine caused by ecocide due to what they call the blight. blight. I found this interesting. You know, I I wanted to learn more about the blight, which I'm actually kind of glad that they don't go too much into it because it's not, it's not the focal point of the movie. And also I think by keeping it mysterious, I think that adds more to the dread of the blight. Like sometimes you'll see them like burning a little patch or you'll hear like, oh, this person had to, you know, burn their whole field or, you know, this is the last year of okra because the blights hit that. And so now we have to burn all the okra. Yeah. The plants just have no chance against any of this at all. You know, they're just mm-hmm. getting wrecked completely. Felt like it's kind of cool to see like this, almost like the happening type of situation going on where it's not like this immediate threat. People are coughing and they start getting almost like a black lung type of thing going on. And it's fucking scary. They have to, your house is always dusty. You have to face your plates and shit down. Yeah. Mm. It's kind of, I mean, it's terrifying because it's not, it's not so far off that it doesn't seem that far outside of our world now. Like, it's not like, you know, like there's a bunch of technology or a lack of technology or, you know, it seems like it's like not far in our future, you know? like a you know a generation or two and so it's kind of like man how possible is this really in our world you know right and i felt like when i first saw this movie like the first you know several times i've seen this movie i, I would gloss over stuff like this i'd just be like oh yeah. whatever it's a fucking dust storm like who the fuck cares but it's like get to space <laughs> yeah i wasn't picking up on how important this is, you know, like how deadly this is. Right, right. Agreed. Yeah. For me, that's one thing that stuck out to me, the explanation that Michael Caine's character gives uh, Dr. Brand. He, um, he says how, you know, um, our earth's atmosphere is, uh, is made up of 80% nitrogen. And he says, and we don't breathe that, but the blight feeds on it. And so it's like, okay, this is something that, um, he doesn't say whether it's, you know, due to uh, pollution or anything like that. It's just, I'm sure, you know, we can assume that it's not, it's certainly not going to help. You just kind of assume. Yeah. So it probably created this perfect environment for this blight to just wreck everything, right? Completely. And even like 10 or 20 years before, this wouldn't have been a possibility. But because of the fact that we've done all these things to the planet and the environment, here we are now. In an irreversible situation. 
Yeah, and they don't need to explain any of that stuff. But I think that, you know, just showing it here and there and just kind of like lightly touching on it was enough for me. It, it kept me curious about it. Sure. No, I, I, same, same. Um, talking about the mindset aspect of it uh, and going in, what you described to me sounded like, sounded very like Zen, uh, like the book uh, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. So you, you, it said that one of the quotes from that book is um, in the expert's mind, there are few possibilities. In the beginner's mind, there are many so approaching this, not as an expert watching this movie for the 10th time, but as somebody who is a beginner, who's going to go in this with a blank slate, tabula rasa, your mind is clear, you're going into this just ready, willing to experience whatever is going to come to you, made, made all the difference. And so, you know, maintaining that level of curiosity, God, there are things that I, I saw in the beginning, I had so much admiration for, for Jonathan Nolan for the script that he made that, that was that was obviously still kept intact for the, for the beginning, for the ghost, for part one of, of, uh, Smurfs, uh, <laughs> part one, the ghost, the ghost. But, uh, uh, I have such a, 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 a respect for deep admiration for and appreciation of everything that goes into the beginning of this movie. Um, so many things that I took for granted before things like speaking of mindsets, you know, there's that point with the teacher, um, says, you know, in the textbooks now, they don't believe that there was an actual lunar landing, and it really pisses off. Right. Uh, that pissed me off. I mean. Right, but it's <laughs> but it's like it, yeah, because there are people out there like that now. You know. Sure, sure, and it's just it's interesting because what it tells me because now it's a textbook. Now it's now it's across the country. This is what is believed to be true, or at least what we're promoting to be true. It tells me that you know. I'm looking at the implications rather than rather than when I watched it the first few times, I would just see that and be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you, like you're saying, Eric, I was like, you're up in the top left corner of my screen. So every time I'm pointing, let's up, get to space. Uh, exactly. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's cool. That's cool. Great, great, great. Let's go to space. Keep it moving, buddy. Keep, keep it moving. Let's keep it moving. Great. This teacher. Okay. That's what's going on. But instead I was like, wow, watching it this time, I had to jot down a note about it. I jotted down several, but I went in and I thought, what are the implications? What are the implications of thinking this way? You know, think about it. If you don't believe that it's possible even to get to space, you're you're kind of like you're limit you are limiting yourself. It's like the the whole thing with the fleas, right? I don't know if you know that but you put fleas in a jar and they'll and they'll jump out. But if you put a lid on it and you keep that lid on it for, you know, a few minutes, eventually when you take the lid off, the fleas will not jump out because they'll have learned their limitation. They'll think that it's still the lid is still on so they will not jump out of the jar. Point being, if people don't think it's possible to go to space, they're not going to so look for solutions. I think that's one of the one of the greatest mm -hmm. uh, tragedies uh, in this movie uh, is that uh, people have lost the willingness to innovate. And Matthew McConaughey was talking about that, and and uh, his his dad was saying, you know, we need farmers, and he's just like, what have we lost? What have we lost that we're no longer innovating, but now we're just what does he say? We're caretakers of the earth. You know, Matthew's character, uh, Cooper, Joseph Cooper, or, you know, simply just Coop, as they call him. Um, a lot of people were were just thinking of, of him as just being like this crazy old guy, an old timer. You're, you know, you're still thinking in like the old ways of things, but this is how things are now. And this is what we need now. Yeah, he was still very adamant about the fact that while this is important, we still need to also have that. You know, we still need to have advancements in technology. We need, We still need to pursue other things like pursue 
innovation and stuff like that. Well, I kind of get it though, because at that point they were just thinking about survival. Survival, you know? yeah. It's it, you know, it's it's kind of like they're in a desperate situation. They don't have the luxury of like spending these resources and wasting potentially race, wasting them on rockets yeah. that may explode or may not find anything up there. Exactly. At the end of the day, it's kind of I don't know. It, it's kind of indoctrination, I guess you could say. So to keep kids in line and keep them from like looking up, you know, like looking mm -hmm. out into space and wondering mm -hmm. what's up there. Right. They, they want to keep them grounded and they want to say, we need to make sure that these kids beat this into their minds that they need to stay here and fix this planet. The kids didn't fucking do this shit. It's the fucking like generations before, but now we're relying on these younger generations to fix it for them. Right. Or even then it's like, maybe, maybe, I mean, we contributed to it, but it's, it could just be that because of the concentration of nitrogen it being 80% in our Earth's atmosphere, that this was an eventuality is almost it. But, but um, you know, without, in essence, we're not looking for solutions now at this point in human history in the movie. We're not looking for actual solutions. We're looking simply to, we're basically putting Band-Aids on a gaping wound that are, it's never going to heal. You know, mm -hmm. we're not going, we're, we're just maintaining it until we all die. And I mean, the fact that NASA had to be, you know, so secretive uh, and, 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 they, they could only find this on these with these special coordinates that they, <laughs> they found in a very a very special way nasa was straight up shut down like they're just like we don't need you anymore like we have no use for you bye-bye right because again it's this whole that that again speaks to the mindset of the going to the textbooks even that this is the general consensus mm -hmm. that this is this is not a focus of ours we just need to they're, they're looking and treating symptoms they're not going to the cause or they're not looking for something to to get outside of it aka finding another planet to colonize and all that stuff and terraform that all goes back to the minor the, the mindset beginner's mind and this is what's so crucial for, for him is, is Coop always sees possibilities where others don't. So instead of just seeing this drone flying lower, you know what I mean? It's like, it's almost like you have to view the movie from the eyes of Coop in the sense that you have to maintain an open heart and a curious mind because then you see more possibilities that way. The in, the, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities, right? So he sees this and what others might see as, oh, just a drone. That's from, you know, that's from the throwback from wherever. Who the fuck cares? Who the fuck cares? It's going to flow, but yeah. fly by, or I don't know anything about this. Instead, he goes, there are, that, that thing has battery cells that could power uh, stuff for our farm. Like he's already solutionizing. He's already sure. seeing possibilities. And then he hacks it from his, from the truck. <laughs> yeah. From his little shitty laptop. I felt like that scene was just so uninteresting before, but right there's a reason for having this. And that's what I was curious about. I was like, what is the point of having this scene in the movie? Because Cooper is on his way to take his kids to school. They get a flat. And then while they're fixing or while, before they attempt to fix the flat, that's when they see that drone flying by. And so I just, I had so many questions this time around, which were flooding my mind where they weren't before, you know, like the first times I, I saw this movie. So what was the motivation for catching the drone? It was for for its power cells, right? For like its solar power technology. Um, and like how he was saying, I guess it, it would be enough to power a, a farm, essentially like a whole farm. And yeah, like he hijacks it using his shitty Dell laptop, right? But I was just so curious as to what the fuck is this thing? They called it like an Indian surveillance drone yeah. or something like that. And at first I thought they meant like Native American. The the Native Americans create like their own government and they create their own drones and shit. Like what's going on with this? No, but no, it's, it's actually, about India, India. Yeah, India, right? Indian. It's from India. I was also wondering like, what is the purpose of this drone? What is it doing? How long has it been up there? Is it 
self-sustaining essentially like it's I been think up he there mentioned that. i mean that that it's been up there for you know uh, over a decade or whatever and he uh, that's why he was saying like those solar powers have kept it alive all this time right, that right. would be enough to power you know such and such on the farm sorry about the baby input it, no no worries so it, it it's gotten to the point where it can fucking sit up there in the sky for essentially ever it only got taken down because it flew so low that cooper was able to hijack it and what is it surveying that's like what is its mission what what is the purpose of this thing that i don't even think i'm supposed to be so curious about this thing but i find it so fascinating it's weird <laughs> yeah yeah i was i was fascinated by it but for me it was um i was i found that i was more fascinated by again that father daughter relationship i mean not not to knock on uh uh timothy chalamet's character um but he is more <laughs> he is point is she's the one who's going to be the savior and so I'm now looking at this as in what way is this influencing her to save the world? Because she has this tenacity, the same tenacity that her dad has. And, um, and so I'm watching this and I'm watching her watch him. And I'm thinking, oh, it's the, I'm looking at the relationship between them. She's more like him than the son. She was almost like a clone of her dad. Like you see a lot of the characteristics, the curiosity, the like the interest in technology and stuff like that in her. Whereas like I but don't think Timothy Chalamet's yeah, I don't think Timothy Chalamet's character is in that same uh, lane. You know, as those two. And to your point, Steph, like the intelligence, her having that potential so early, um, I feel like the sky's the limit for her, or it would have been had they still had those those programs in place. Yeah, I, I agree. I think what makes what makes a person interesting is how interested they are. Again, being curious, Tom, Timothy Chalamet's character, he's not very interesting because he's not very interested. He he doesn't he's just he's pissed off, you know, oh we got a flat tire or, or whatever and all he can think about is the more pragmatic like thing. Just being here on earth, you know, doing this thing, whatever. He's not looking at this as an opportunity or what, what, what could we do with this technology? Whereas uh, Coop and Murph are. Also, it's, it's funny that I noted this as well. And I, I don't know, it's just, there seems to be much more thought. <laughs> there seems to be much more thought put into her name than Tom. Murph, right? So why did you name me Murph anyway? Or why did you name me Murphy after Murphy's Law? And uh, whatever can happen will happen. That's how we approach it. She's like, oh, Murphy's Law, you know, the worst thing that can happen, um, you know, bad things happening or whatever. I don't remember exactly her wording of it, but then he explains the meaning that he understood, he and her mom understood it to be, which was simply whatever can happen will happen. And I thought that was so interesting that uh, the Nolans had it be that way where Murph's name um, is so whatever can happen will happen kind of thing because it just opens it up for more possibilities. It's, again, foreshadowing. That's what's cool about it is I don't think you're originally supposed to think that she is going to be the savior. I think Coop is meant to he he is like the the main main character and you think that he's the one that's going to save Earth when he's only there to help her save Earth. But right. you don't figure that out until later. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You see all these Easter eggs. You realize that all along she was going to be the savior and you just appreciate how they built it up so subtly over over the course of the movie to, to then you go, oh, it just totally makes sense. Yeah, of course I see this now. Whatever can happen will happen. <laughs> and this one's for you, Steph, but fun fact. <laughs> uh, 
actress Mackenzie Foy, who played uh, uh, Murph. She was the creepy-looking CGI baby Renesmee Cullen in Breaking Dawn. No, she wasn't the CGI baby. The CGI baby was CGI. She was uh, she was her after she grew up a little bit. I thought it took her face too. Like, didn't it use her likeness? They're probably right. It probably, they probably did. <laughs> she was creepy in that movie. Oh. Uh, yeah, kind of, kind of everything. Everything about her was a little bit unsettling. So, what did you guys think of like the whole ghost thing? You know, and this is the whole reason why steph called part one the ghost is because they put a lot of emphasis on this ghost whatever being is communicating with murph in her room the interesting thing when i first the first time i saw the movie i just thought it was i mean because you know i didn't know and so i was just like what is this going on like this is this is weird this is you know i I don't i i might have thought it was pointless at the time or whatever and then eventually you know like if you're if it's the first time you're seeing it eventually you figure it out what the ghost is and the, and whatnot but before i knew i was just like like what is this you know and then watching it the second time i was like okay it makes so much more sense now and i get why it's happening what's happening why it's happening and you know that eventually you know coop just likens it to a what was it gravitational anomaly and not a ghost they had just like random books and like there was like weird pockets of like gravitational anomalies in that room which you saw a little bit later when there that dust storm hits the house and she left she accidentally left the window open so they go in and her room is just covered in dust right so they close it but then you see like strands of gravity vertically coming down i think if you walk through it it wouldn't have been enough to really notice it but like seeing that visual the dust is floating in the air except for in these strands where it's being pressed down quicker than the rest of the dust and so that was even tested when Cooper like flips that coin and when it lands on one of those strands, it, it like immediately stops bouncing. It just like goes flat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's where he figures out the, oh, it's gravity, you know? Right. I'm trying to think how it, um, how is he manipulating gravity from the black hole? Like, I know that he's, he's almost, it's like strings, right? It looks like it's strings. So is his blocking, I don't know, maybe, the, maybe there's no answer to it specifically, but um, know that he's manipulating gravity somehow in that space. Mm-hmm. I think to understand how he's manipulating it would be to understand what the fuck the Tesseract is, which I don't think you're, it, I think it's supposed to be a theory. So it's not something that you can completely explain. It's just like an idea of it, you know, and this is kind of like a depiction of that idea. Right, right. Yeah, I do agree that it looked like he was manipulating the gravity via some sort of string um type situation yeah or a strand in time oh a strand yeah okay because it's like he's manipulating time as well as gravity at the same time because gravity is something that doesn't um it's not bound by time huh oh that's interesting that is a that's a that's one to think about i mean like i believe you but at the same time like i want to think harder about that you know yeah, yeah, that's not that's 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 something that uh, needs unpacking itself. Yeah, gravity is outside of time, and and what you said is so true. Um, because you know later on when they're actually still still in the in the ghost portion of it, they're talking to Wes. What's his name? I can't remember that that character. Um, I forget that actor. Wes Bentley. Wes Bentley. They're sitting at that big boardroom table, and he's explaining what they know, what they know and how, how information is, is transferred um, 
and, and it's done so in uh, in binary. Oh yeah, was that Doyle? I think Doyle. was the that's right. That's, name? that's Doyle. Yeah, how he says that that it's it's very um, rudimentary. He says is the word. It's rudimentary how how information is transferred from from people that went through the wormhole back to us, and it's done so mm, in a, in sure, binary. Sure. And I thought interesting. I thought I would guess gravity is being used to transmit those that binary information, which again is just laying. It's it's all making sense so that when that's why I remember just thinking to myself when it gets to that point where Coop uh, is in the tesseract and how he's talking to Tars and he's tra- talking about transmitting that information in binary code. I was like, how the fuck did he even decide that? Well, it goes back to this. It's <laughs> it now makes sense. I'm like, oh my sure. gosh, of course he this Doyle laid the groundwork for it and said. And so then going back to what you said about, about how gravity is outside of time, therefore it's not limited, right? And that, what, that's how the information can be right. transmitted from beyond the wormhole to the other side mm-hmm. back, back here. I don't know. It's just like I like playing around with ideas like that. And uh, I mean, even in the movie, you know how you're talking about they're using binary, but Murphy even suggests that it's Morse code to her dad at first. She was all like, wait, I think, I think it, they're like – whatever this being is, this ghost is communicating through Morse. You know, he's thinking about that at first, but then he switches over to binary and then he uses that to come up with the coordinates. Mm -hmm. And so he writes it down and he looks up on the map and it's in the middle of fucking nowhere. Like there's no roads leading to this thing, but you know what? Like, Hey, you never know unless you find out. I mean, but he does use Morse later, which is actually the first message that he tries to transmit, you know? But when he's kind of still in denial and he's, you know, he sees that first scene where it's, you know, him saying goodbye to Murph and he's, you know, he's like, no, you know, Murph, make him stay. Don't let me leave, Murph. Don't don't let me leave. And and he sends that first message, which is actually the last message or second to last message, if you count the watch, you know, before he like comes to the realization that he has a bigger role there, you know, then, then he realizes, oh, wait, you know, it's been me all along. I need to send the coordinates and they need to be in binary. So he's like, you know, Tars, give me the coordinates in binary. I like this part. I thought this was kind of cute and it showed more of the dynamic between the two. You know, they, they work on things together and they, they kind of like hash things out. Yeah. But Cooper wanted to, cause he, he doesn't know what's out there. It, it could be a trap. It could be dangerous, whatever the case, but um, he was going to go visit that, the coordinates, you know, and improve his theory, right or wrong. Uh-huh. And he told her to stay. She wanted to go, but he's like, no, you gotta stay. And so when he gets in the truck, he pulls that little blanket from the passenger side and she's there, you know, she's like a stowaway on the truck and he's not mad. Like mm-hmm. he, he's actually kind of glad that she's there. And I thought that was kind of cute. And then at the end when they finally get there and they hit the fence and <clears throat> she's like kind of waking, you know, he wakes her up. She's asleep and he wakes her up and he's like, you know, we're here. It's a dead end. There's a fence. We can't, you know, we can't get through. And she's like, she yawns and she's like, didn't you bring the bolt mm-hmm. cutters? They yeah. just think so. Like, <laughs> And he's like, that's my girl. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that's, that's what I was going to mention as well is they, they are, they're a great team. And, uh, without her, I mean, would the, the, certainly begs the question, would he have pressed on or would he have stopped? Cause he mm, seemed like, maybe. I'm not so sure about this, but then when she, when she says, didn't you bring the bolt cutters, right? As she's yawning and he goes, that's my girl. It's like, he needed that, just that little push needed her, uh, validation. Like, I'm, thinking, I'm, thinking, I'm thinking of doing this. Right. Well, they're each other's, right? They, they, they feed That's each other true. this. And- like, even when she gets she gets in trouble at school, he backs her up. He's just like, no, I, I'm yeah. taking her to Murph's side. 
you guys are the idiots. I'm taking her to a baseball game. Right, right exactly. What are you going to do about this? I'm taking her to a baseball game. There's candy and popcorn. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like this scene when he's about to break into this like secured area, you know, it's it's like fenced off and has like barbed wire at the top and everything. Signs that say keep out. But, you know, other than that, there's nothing else to go off of. So he's about to break in and there's this blinding light. I almost got vibes that this was alluding to like extraterrestrials, like aliens or something, especially when it's the light is shining into the truck. It's like, don't be afraid. And Murph is just like, ah, you know, she's like freaking out. Yeah, it very much felt like fire in the sky or something like that, you know, like some sort of like alien abduction. Yeah, a little creepy, mm. scary, like a throwback to old sci-fi movies or something. Yeah. But then we find out that it's NASA and the fact or what what you thought, you know, you thinking that NASA was shut down was a lie. This whole secret operation. In fact, NASA is alive and well and working on a plan to save the human race which is also a lie (laughs) i think that's why they were so startled by this this father and his daughter stumbling on their location because it's so secretive it's out in the middle of nowhere there's no roads around how the hell did you find us and that's what they wanted to know especially somebody that they knew really quick how fucking cool are those robots i know right oh yeah I love yeah, yeah. them. And he says it's old technology. That's so funny. He's like, yeah, this is old technology. It's like the wiring could be bad. I think these robots just might be one of my favorite elements of the entire movie because these AI robots resemble some sort of like retro futuristic CRT TV kiosk looking things. Yeah, they, kind of, <laughs> they look like they, yeah. they look like Tetris pieces. Really clunky. Slash, yeah, I don't know, like an old jukebox slash... I don't even know. Yeah. Yeah. Old jukebox. It's it's interesting because it, their movements are so rigid, obviously, and yet they move smoothly. It's a, it's kind of an interesting paradox that when they and move they along, like fast. especially when they get saved in the water. Yeah. Yeah. So like cool. when they go, like they could roll them and... out of the water. Aesthetically, they look really retro. They're very advanced in capabilities. Yeah. And I love the fact Those that so little cool. by little throughout the movie, you show they show what these things can, are actually capable of. You know, like they show more, yeah. more skills that they can do. And I, I thought, like, the, who came up with the ideas for these things? These robots are fucking dope. I know. They need to make those in real life so that they could take over our planet one day. <laughs> take over, yeah. I'm going to need you to turn down your humor to about 75 stuff. <laughs> that's right <laughs> <laughs> see even stuff like that like i love the the levity you know in in these intense yeah. situations like he's croup's uh, just like he's like what's your uh, humor level set to 100 oh, percent. let's uh let's turn that down a little bit 90 <laughs> <90%. laughs> percent. the honesty setting and whatnot yeah i thought that was how many settings must they have you know oh yeah i imagine like you can customize those however you want to customize a little bit to work better with that person, right? Like that teammate. It's kind of like having a, your own droid. Yeah. Yeah. actually, I mean, like sometimes when it walks, it, it kind of reminded me of R2D2 a little bit. Yeah. A little bit the way it like tilts back kind mm-hmm. of thing. Yeah. So the, so thus starts part two relativity. And it turns out that like how you're saying Cooper showed up at the perfect time because they were getting ready to like send this rocket out with this mediocre ass crew or at least mediocre pilots that can't even make it out of training. And uh, Cooper accidentally stumbles upon this thing. So it was just like everything was meant to be. 
Yeah. I mean, obviously we find out that it was orchestrated when he sent himself there. So the thing is, would he have found it had he not helped himself from the future? Well, that's the thing. I mean, that's the thing about the whole time travel thing, you know? There had to be a first time. Yeah. Or was there ever a first time? I don't know. Time travel. That's the time paradox right there. Yeah, that's... Yeah, exactly. So, anyway, he, he makes it there. Yeah, at some point, he has to go and say goodbye to Murph, which is an actual absolute disaster. And she kind of never recovers from that. Like, that scars her for life. So, I guess before we get into that, what is the mission? To, okay, there's two plans. Plan A is to go find a habitable planet, which is actually possible because somebody has placed a wormhole next to Saturn that directly leads to a galaxy with several possibly habitable planets. And when they, when you say placed, it essentially just like showed up out of nowhere. And I love that. Yeah, it showed up out of nowhere. And I love the their explanation because they talk about the whole like bending, like they, they showed like the little piece of paper example where you have like point A mm-hmm. over here on one side and point B over here on the other side, a line in time, and then you fold it to bring those two points in time together and punch a hole through it. Bend time, and then yeah. they say like, oh, you know, a piece of paper is 2D or, you know, is, is flat. And then you, you, you punch a circle into it, which is like the 2D depiction. And so, you know, we're in 3D. What is a hole punched in time for us in 3D? That would be a sphere. And so the wormhole looks like a sphere, like a black whirling sphere in space. That's another, you know, like thought provoking idea is like, what the hell does a hole in three dimensions look like? No matter what angle and what side you're looking at it, it's a hole. Yeah. Um, If it looks the same on all sides, it's essentially a sphere. Yeah, exactly. In three dimensions, a hole is is a sphere. Uh, at least in space time, I guess. Yeah. Um, and it totally makes sense. And we'll, and we'll come back to that because when they explain that simply in this section, that's kind of how they, what they use to explain the Tesseract later. Sure. sure. Oh yeah. And we're going to like, once we get to that scene in the movie, like we're, yeah. I'm going to spend some time discussing that because that is a fucking cool idea as well. But yeah, I, I knew exactly. about that paper bending like analogy from like Star Trek movies, because that's essentially what warp is, is like you, you like bend time. You just like shoot right into yeah. it. Thank you. Mm. Star Trek. Um, <laughs> so plan a is finding a habitable planet and literally moving everybody from Earth to that planet. And that's the Lazarus crew that was sent out like 10 years prior. They were the brave ones to first jump into the hole. Yeah. And so they're trying to find these planets. To, and they sent one person out to each planet to see if they're habitable. And they're supposed to ping back one thumbs up. And that was it. So they, they've been getting you know positive feedback from three different planets. And they decide that they're supposed to go visit those three planets and see which one is the best, right? And plan A, move everyone to that planet. Plan B, they have a bunch of fertilized eggs that are supposed to eventually become the new human population. If they get out there and there's no way to come back, at least you have a bunch of fertilized eggs and you can repopulate with that method. But obviously that's like a worst case scenario type of thing. What do you guys think of the the different plans? Like, it seems like plan A is uh, that's a bit of a doozy like there's a lot that needs to go right for that to work a lot of uh possibilities of shit hitting the fan (laughs) during plan a yeah a lot more moving parts they need to survive going through this black hole first and once they get there they need to rendezvous with 
each of the Lazarus crew members on each of the planets, gather the data and decipher whether they can actually live there or not, and then make it back somehow with that information. Yeah. So plan B, which is interesting, is like, okay, well, you have a, you have, you know, however many million fertilized eggs or whatever, how are they going to raise themselves? Like from babies and stuff. So I guess the, the, the plan was for 10 of them to be born and then I guess robots are going to raise them and then they were going to become the parents of all the rest of them mm. or like, you know, a few more. And then, and then they'll start probably start recreating with each other. And when you think about it, how would that shape the future generations of humans, you know, like being raised by robots first, everyone having like the nuts. same parents. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. Will we be like husks yeah. of ourselves? What kind of culture? Yeah. What, what kind of culture would there be? What kind of personalities would there be? Yeah. Needless to say, all this is simple stuff. Right. What could go wrong? What could go wrong? Yeah, super simple. Mm-hmm. Straightforward. So the contingency plan is plan B, and that's also the name of a contraceptive. <laughs> so it's like we're, we're trying to do the opposite of that here. Right. Right, right. That is kind of ironic. Is she pulling on the curtain over there? <laughs> yeah, she's just... Whatever keeps her quiet. Um, so then she, so then they go to the first planet. Like they wait, wait. Are you jumping to like once they've gone through already? Oh yeah, that's true. We gotta talk about the wormhole. So on. even before okay. that, okay. There's okay. this intense scene where Cooper has to leave Murph, and I wanted to get your guys' opinion on this because she was obviously very hurt by this. She felt like she was being abandoned. But did you feel like it justified her reaction? Here's the thing: she's only ten. <laughs> And so no matter what happens... But she doesn't think like a 10-year-old, a typical 10-year-old. That's true. She's more mentally mature. Well, I mean, that's a, I guess that's why she didn't just believe him, you know, his BS when he was like, oh, I'm going to come back, I'm going to come back. She's like, really? Are you going to come back, though? Mm-hmm. And so she, I mean, she can think more realistically. Like, you know, he's going through a wormhole beyond Saturn. Like, am I ever going to see him again? Is he really leaving me right now? Right. It- yes. I think, yeah, I think it's it's raw, especially as a 10-year-old. I think that um, he's coming at it very much like a man, and she's coming at it very much like a woman. And and I mean that in that he is, he's hopeful and he's very logical that this could, that this is, a, you know, he's, he's, his, he has every intention, in other words, of coming back. His, his heart, he's, he loves her and he wants her to know that. Her, she's processing these emotions. Guys don't really do that. And so he's holding on to hope, but he's not really looking at it like, I'm never going to see her again. He's yeah. got to hold on to that because that's what he's, he wants to save her and, and his son and the rest of and the And he's family. not seeing yeah. it from her perspective either. You know, he's just like, listen, it's got to happen. I'm saving the planet. You know, like that's, that's, this is just something I got to do. Yeah. I didn't choose this. It chose me. Literally. Right. To her, she probably would have rather been able to spend more time with her dad and like have the world crumble than have him leave exactly. her like that. But that's also kind of like the immaturity of a child. Yeah, precisely. But but again, she's she's processing this and the potential of you know of of losing him. So she's feeling a lot. She's she's feeling it all. I mean, when you look at it, she probably knew a lot of details about it. I mean, she was in like the briefing room with them, right? So what she was hearing was a suicide mission. Try to make it back if you can, if you survive even getting out there in the first place. Right, right. I don't want to leave like this, but I really have to go. Like the mission is starting right now. I got to make it back. And so he drives off and then she runs out after him. She really did want to show that she did love him, but she never got to say that before he left. But then like later on when he's already like out in space and he's receiving these video messages, she won't even like send him a video. I thought that was... 
that was kind of hurtful, at least from my opinion. Young girls take things very personally. I'm thinking, and yeah, she probably just like took it as a personal hit on her somehow, you know? Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it shows me that again, that the, it's a complex situation, um, in terms of just, you know, she gets that her dad is trying to save them and, and she has every, she does still try to keep hope because she's seen her dad pull a rabbit out of a hat many times and she, she trusts in him, but at the same time, um, she sees the world falling apart around her and he's not able to stop, save them from that at this point. So it's kind of like, you know, um, a harsh reality. They're facing a, this, that generation, that young generation is facing a harsh reality of, you know, doom essentially. So what I see in her is um, I see a lot of unprocessed emotion. Uh, mm-hmm. She's keeping, she's holding that grudge because in a way he did this to her. In other words, like she sees his actions as being the cause of her pain. And then when she runs out and isn't able to say goodbye, actually tell her, tell him that she loves him. She feels guilt. She feels guilty for not being able to, to, to express herself that way. Yeah. And so then she blames him for that too. So she holds on to this pain because he's still not there, you know? And uh, she's holding on to those uh, those resentments. Plus, I mean, you know, he's always been her protector, obviously, being a parent. You have, like, these potential threats out in space that you haven't quite seen yet to this point. But then you have this real imminent danger that's happening on Earth, and you see that shit every day in such a vulnerable state. It becomes fucking scary, you know? And, like, at that point, that fear kind of trumps everything else. Yeah, emotions are running high. It's literally life or death your dad is gone and you don't even know if he's ever going to come back. He says it's going to be like a few years and, and she's going to be an adult by the time he comes back. But like, is everyone going to be dead by that point? We don't even know. We don't know how slow this blight is. Um, Certain things might happen while he's gone that could accelerate that these what ifs and all that is scary. You know, he felt like he was doing his duty as a parent by like saving her and the planet by going on this mission. But like, you know, you won't see the fruits of that until way later, if at all. <laughs> but it's worth it, right? Like he has to hope that this is this is their one shot at at saving even her and uh, and everyone else on the planet. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's a good point. Like that, the, the situation is dire. So again, emotions are running high. It's like being living here in California. I know it's it's always been a comfort. I mean, there hasn't been um we haven't had a really large earthquake in quite some time but i remember when i was a kid and, and we had them i remember it was a comfort to have you know my parents near me i think i was like five or six when the real really big one came and uh my parents were there so yeah I, I, again it's like that situation writ large it's not just one earthquake that's that's just done it's like this imminent doom is is still there and she doesn't have her father there too to um, protect her, but it's more than that because he's, he, he thinks like her, how lonely it is in the world to, to uh, how lonely it can be in this world when people don't understand you, you know, and her brother, least of all. So, or at least her dad did. And so he was not only her dad and protector um, and, and taught her so much. He was also like her friend, you know, in some sense, a, a mentor as well. Sure. And so, so to, to lose that like-minded person who is so knowledgeable that she is so close to, um, at a time when she would need him the most. It's uh, it's super painful. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, he, uh, he finally achieves his lifelong goal of flying into space. Cooper's, uh, he's doing it, he, he's piloting that ship. Right, he's got, because again, at the beginning, he had that nightmare 
but it was him crashing. Mm -hmm. Remember, he he was in a in one of those uh, I forget what they're called, but like a shuttle or something yeah. like that. And you see his dream happening, and he's in the clouds and everything. I think they call him the Rangers in the movie, if I recall, because they all kind of look the same, right? The same style, right? Right. But it's but it's interesting because in in a way that dream is also a premonition too of him piloting eventually later on. Yeah. So again, who knows if they are putting that in him as well, the, the they that created the wormhole as well. The, so you know, like, the dream just kind of shows us that he was a good pilot and he crashed. They, they imply that he crashed because they took over. Definitely shows like the, uh, the skill level that he possesses right, as a pilot. And the tenacity and the, and the confidence that he has in himself, despite having crashed that other uh, aircraft. You know, I wonder too, if like, was he really that much more skilled of a pilot than the rest of the crew members that kept failing? Or did he just have that confidence in himself that they didn't have? It's an excellent question. That's what I'm here for. I mean, just confidence is going to get you out of a situation like that, you know? You got to have the skill. If you have the confidence and no abilities, then you're going to die. <laughs> I'm not saying that he didn't have the abilities. I'm saying, was he that much more skilled than those pilots that we I never think, actually I mean, see. personally, I think so, but... I think, he, again, he looks for possibilities. I think that he's willing... He trusts... He has confidence in himself to make whatever he needs to have happen, happen. Um, I think about... Uh, it's basically taking a risk, right? He's got he's to gotta believe that what he's learned up till then is going to help him. And he's got to be able to trust in himself, which I think, if nothing else, them or they um, causing his aircraft to, to crash before... Are really they're testing his uh, they're testing his tenacity they're testing his confidence in himself he needs to have every bit of it in order mm -hmm. to survive this mission and uh, he has it in spades up until then but uh, now he's got to face his demons <laughs> <laughs> and I guess to uh, go along with like the whole time thing like how he was trying to cut as much time by landing like super quickly and dangerously I love the fact that they put time in the forefront so often because that is that's like a currency that's a resource that is very scarce in this situation you know they don't have a lot of time like even by traveling from earth to saturn where that wormhole is located they have to go into that little cryostasis and uh, i thought that was actually uh, a cool concept too because i've seen cryostasis in several different science fiction movies and shows and stuff but this one looked a little bit unique compared to those you know like they have that little like bag that they put over them and they're like submerged in water and i guess they flash freeze the liquid that's in there i'm not quite sure how how it worked and they didn't really obviously they didn't it. really go yeah. into detail but yeah it's pretty pretty cool so what it takes like it takes like two what two years for them to get to saturn to get to the wormhole right and that's already yeah that's already two years there and then and then they go through the wormhole which is interesting like for a while it just looks like they're kind of going along the edge of it like they're orbiting a planet right and then all right. of a sudden they're in it and yeah it's just i i wonder how they you know came up with how that would look and whatnot yeah yeah i'm curious as to like what you guys thought of this because this is a a very prominent moment in the movie yeah obviously like in a a fucking black sphere there isn't really much to look at but i love how i love how they approached it I love the visuals of it. It was like spinning almost like you could almost see like yeah. Yeah. a mirrored surface and you could see the other stars and it was spinning in one direction, but also at the same time it was spinning the opposite direction. If you can picture that. Yeah. And like how you're saying they're flying 
parallel to the surface of it, like the wherever that like event horizon is, you know, they're like flying parallel to it and they slowly like kind of like inch closer to it and then until it like sucks them in. Hmm. Weird. Is that better than just like going headfirst into it? That's exactly my thought. I was, I was thinking, yeah, like peeling an orange almost. There. I know. Instead of like flying directly into the, yeah, but um, yeah. And then they're going, they're going through it and you know, they, have already agreed that whoever they is put it there. Mm-hmm. Dr. Brand, AKA Amelia Brand, AKA played by Anne Hathaway. Um, you know, she sees like a little distortion in the air next to her and puts her hand up next to it. And, you know, her hand distorts and stuff like that. And then when it's over, she, you know, they're like, what is that? And she's like, Oh, the first handshake. Yeah. It looked like this extraterrestrial or like, I don't know. Like it didn't really have like any distinct features. It was just no, kind of like this. A, like it was just like a distortion thing. in the area. Yeah. So yeah, on the other side of this wormhole, um, they ultimately decide to investigate the closest planet first, right? Which is also the closest one to this super massive black hole called Gargantua. They call it Gargantua. Which creates this gravitational time dilation. Yeah, which is the the theory of relativity that the more uh, the closer you get to the speed of light, the more time distorts. The, the the slower time goes for you, which means it's going faster for everybody else. Interesting. So does that mean since it's closest to Gargantua, is it spinning quicker than the other planets? Um, That's a good question. That's why time is like slower on that world? Well, it's closer to the black hole which is spinning closer to the speed of light i guess also oh, the and black sucking hole in is all spinning. the light yeah yeah the black mm-hmm. hole is what's what's causing the time dilation the closer the, that planet happens to be on the cusp of the black hole right, not right. quite where it's getting sucked in but right before that but it's close enough to be affected by the time dilation the fact that you go on this planet everything seems normal but then by the time you leave it's like 1 hour equals 12 years or some shit like that and 7 years Oh, so they're years. expecting to be, they're expecting to just get, get on that planet and leave as soon as possible, waste as few years as possible, right? They go on that planet and they're like, oh, it's a water world. That's cool. But they land the ship in, you know, fancy fashion and discover, oh, the water's pretty shallow. That's cool. We need water. You know, that's a great resource to have. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but then they find, was it Dr. Miller or just Miller or whatever? Oh, yeah. So it's important to note that. Coop, Amelia, and Doyle fly down to the planet. Romilly stays behind on the ship to study Gargantua. Yeah, so he he recognizes they're going to be gone for a few years. Uh, let me take this time to study the gravity in this black hole for a little while. Find out more about it. So yeah. he stays behind, yeah. And um, I'm thinking it's just going to be uh, two to seven years. Maybe they'll be down there for half an hour, an hour, whatever. They'll get the information that they need and, and you know, rescue Miller or whatever and scram. So they go down there and they realize they find they follow the beacon. Yeah, they follow the they follow the beacon. They find the beacon and it's wreckage. And I guess there's like a like a black box or whatever like that has all the data that they, that they want. And so Amelia goes after that, which is like way out there. Mhm. And then they realize like, "Oh crap. This water world uh not so great. Not it just has it's just <laughs> 
it's just like a constant ocean with giant crazy waves all the time and we're sitting in the cusp of a wave right now and there's a wall of water coming towards them which I've all you know you know me I've always loved natural disaster movies so this is like right up my alley right Dude, and I was like that is awesome <laughs> can can we spend some time on this planet because I fucking love this planet dude like I love the concept of this planet <laughs> and I love everything that happens on it right so I think what's interesting to note is that when you land on this planet everything seems fine and it's it's very unassuming and it's so calm and peaceful and like shallow goes up water. to your ankles you yeah. know it's, it's what you're like okay we can we can make this work it's not like water world you even got like nice mountains on the background that's cool but then uh while coop was in the the ship he's like wait those aren't mountains those mountains are getting closer well, he's, he's looking off in the distance. And he's like, those waves are going away. So then he has the, yeah. the idea to like look the opposite direction. And he's like, those mountains are getting closer. Those aren't mountains. Those are fucking waves. That's like a giant ass tidal wave. Oh my goodness. They're about we to get need to get, get the fuck up out of here. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, Bran's like, no, I need to get this box of data. And she runs out there. She and she can't even get it off the the piece of metal that it's on or whatever, and then she gets like pinned down by it. Yeah, I think I think the water kind of like throws off her balance, and then it like yeah. ends up like on her leg. Yeah, they send Tars after her, right? Here we go. One of the uh, dopest coolest tar scenes. scenes yeah. I know. He turns into this yeah. like this like asterisk looking, <laughs> st- <laughs> right? And he just like cartwheels yeah, to yeah. her, <laughs> literally rolls over there in like two seconds and picks her ass up like nothing and rolls back it like, continues to roll while having these stationary arms that are holding her how dope and is this right like the f- it's just so cool the outside legs are still spinning and yeah. it's like propelling them <laughs> and you know saves her but somehow they lose doyle doyle's slow ass he gets left behind and he gets like crushed by the wave right when it hits i mean it's not like brand wasn't further out and somehow doyle gets annihilated which is ridiculous for yeah. him and, yeah and so they fly back right and and they and you know uh, you know brand's like i'm so sorry like she knows that she's wasted more time doing that well they don't even fly back that's the thing they get they, they get, end up getting pounded by a wave floods the engines and they can't even yeah. like leave the planet so that this is what i also like about the planet is it's this unassuming death trap because there's constant right. waves that are like combing the surface of the planet yeah. So I think this is also what happened to the other astronaut from the Lazarus Miller, project I believe, is like, right. I think they landed, but then they couldn't get, they didn't have enough time to get off because once it floods your engines, you, you have to wait for it to like empty out. And then by the time that happens, you get pounded again. And that just keeps happening until either you get completely crushed or like the ship is already ruined. I imagine this is another, another th- like concept, something to ponder on. Um, I imagine she landed and then like immediately, you know, left her ship and what, and then got smashed by waves. Like didn't, didn't even realize there was a wave coming up behind her. just got completely annihilated. Right. Um, then, then they, and then they mention when they're, after they leave that she probably died minutes ago before they got there. How crazy is that? She left like 10 years. If you're on that planet and you're just chilling, right. seeing everything she would have landed and she's like, Oh, this is dope smash smash right by the wave (laughs) and then next thing you know this other ship like lands and it's just like oh shit where is she i don't know i don't see her (sighs) who should it help me from yeah it's crazy i loved 
how genius it was how they leave because uh cooper again he's always looking for an alternative and i think this is something that that lazarus person if she was a he or she was able to make it back into their ship they wouldn't have been able to think of this most likely is that coop has everyone put their helmets on because what he's going to do is he needs to like quickly flush the engines while also igniting at the same time and so he flushes the oxygen in the cabin blows the air out but also it helps ignite because that's what it needs is oxygen right so it like helps ignite the engines and then they can just haul ass out of there i thought that was so fucking smart dude Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. man and then they barely make it out of there he works well under pressure yeah who knows if they would have survived another wave crash i know he he saved their ass so many times with his with his quick thinking yeah so when they so when they go back they they the the hatch opens and Romley's gone gray, basically. Yep. He's all old now. Um, not that old. Maybe like in his. I don't mm. know. Was well, it twenty three years? Twenty three years. Yeah. Yeah. So to, they they that means they were down there for a couple of out three hours at like least three hours three, three plus hours they intended uh, like what less than two and they ended up three and that little stunt cost they them. wanted one yeah they were planning on like a half an hour to one hour. And they ended up down there for three hours. I wonder what the distance and... from like orbit to the surface was for that planet. Then. Yeah, yeah. That's a good question. Because it seems like they were there so so briefly. Yeah, three minutes to, us, of to like land and shit. Damn. Or either that, or they they miscalculated that it wasn't actually seven years. Right. right. Possibly. Uh, Possibly. Yeah. Because they were not down there that long, and mm-hmm. so that you know, obviously, they missed a lot of video transmissions. Um, a lot happened, including, so well, something that I know, something that Coop mentioned was that, oh, maybe when I come back, we'll be the same age because of the time dilation. And so she, she fi- Murph finally sends a video saying, oh, today's my birthday and it's a special birthday because I am now the age that you were when you left. And you left. And, you know, Coop's there balling. So, like, if she still has this grudge even now, why do you think that she even made this video? To rub it in his face obviously what what is she trying to hoping to accomplish though with this guilt she's guilting him am i the only woman here yeah (laughs) yeah she's she wants to definitely wants to guilt him Mm -hmm. yeah like you said you were gonna come back but uh right but but the difference between the opposite of love is not hate the opposite of love is indifference and so for her to still have this resentment toward him means she's still connected to him, means she still loves him very much. Mm-hmm. They're very much connected. So she's guilting him because she feels the pain still. It's very real for her. Yeah, and uh, and she is still still missing him and still in some way holding out hope because why else make this message if she doesn't hope that he's still alive? And yeah, she's like, well, you're you due know. back now. So come come on back. Yeah. And then even like even through all through all the grudges and the the resentment and the guilt guilt tripping and all that, um, she still you know at the end she's still like I, I always believed you would come back you know. If she would truly deep down believe that, then why didn't she actually believe it? You know, like it, right? she she wasted so many years of her Being life resentful. pretending that she wasn't yeah. you know instead of leaning into it. Or maybe she was just mad that he wasn't back yet or whatever. Yeah. Because do you think it would have hurt too much to like find out that he like definitively he died out there or or something happened and he actually wasn't coming back? Yeah, she would rather believe that he was choosing not to come back yet or whatever. Right. It's it's still hurt because then it hurts. It hurts to have your hopes up because then you could potentially you know 
uh, be, be disappointed. You know, it's also sad to think about too in the situation is that him leaving really fucked her up mentally. Mm-hmm. Do you think she would have been, she would have worked so hard in her studies and became this great scientist if he hadn't left and hurt her? Or do you think she would have still become that potentially? And like, how's this going to affect her personal life? Is she going to be able to trust anyone again? I definitely, she's gonna, I definitely think she's scarred for life. She's going to have issues, you know, forever. Definitely. Definitely. Um, I mean, that's, that's a given. And I mean, it's evidenced by the fact that she's dating Topher Grace of all people. For God's whew, sake. Burn. That definitely shows that how little respect she has for herself. <laughs> right. Exactly. Topher Grace. Come on. Oh man. Yeah. Seriously. Um, honestly, I think that if this hadn't happened, obviously NASA would have been kept a secret she would have probably ended up, you know, helping on the farm forever and her skills would have gone to waste. Maybe, yeah. Since NASA was revealed to her, she was able to be involved with that and actually help and eventually save the world. So that worked out in everybody's favor. Um, But yeah, I mean, since they were out there for 23 years, even though the Endurance was able to remain in orbit around this planet or remain in, you know, it's one spot or whatever, it's still used enough fuel where they have to now choose between the last two planets. Are we at that point yet? Yeah, I mean that that's the next step is like now that they made it back to the endurance, we we learn that Murph is the adult and she's the same age as Coop when he left. And that's that's what's crazy is like you're real you're aging at a slower rate than your child is, and now your child is gonna be older than you. I know. Yeah, and that's what that's they, so they get to at the end where, you know, where they reconnect at the end and you don't like no parent should have to see their child die. So this is a pretty intense scene, too. Yeah, because cute, cute monologue about love. I was really invested in this, this discussion because Amelia was saying that she wants to trust her gut and go with Dr. Edmund's planet, even though despite the fact that Dr. Mann's planet has more, more promising data. yeah. Dr. Brand, she's really adamant about going to Dr. Edmund's planet instead. And Coop kind of has to put her in her place. And he he actually puts her on blast by saying, like, yeah. are you thinking logically or are you thinking through your love for Dr. Brand? Yeah. And so he basically reveals that she is in love or she was in love with Dr. Edmund. With Edmund. And yeah. that could be clouding her judgment. His first name is Wolf, by the way. Let's just pretend like that never happened. anyway um so yeah she you know has this great monologue about about love which you know which i guess is has been a a contested topic on online you know some people think the whole like the whole all the love themes throughout this movie are you know hullabaloo or whatever and then some people think it's it's all relative like time (laughs) nice one so I mean, she she recognizes that, yes, you know, even even, you know, the slightest chance that she might be able to see him again is a huge draw, but also her, you know, her gut is, you know, telling her to go to that planet and Coop shuts that down and is like, no, you're you're thinking with your emotions. We, we need to go to the one that actually has more promising data and is further from the black hole. And I thought this was so fucking genius, though, because 
all signs are pointing that Dr. Man's planet is the better planet to go to. Like that one is, is most likely going to be our planet. Right. But like Dr. Brand had the like intuition, like it's true. I love Dr. Edmund, but there's something telling me that we need to go to this planet instead. Right. Um, she was basically vetoed on that decision mm-hmm. and they decided to go to Dr. Man's planet instead. But I was like, man, how fucking like crazy was that? If they listened to her heart and her gut, they would be they done. would have made the correct decision. Yeah. I mean, yeah, but also would it have been the correct decision? I mean, they would have found the planet, but then would they have found, would they have actually gone through the black hole and discovered all that data that would then be transmitted to save everybody else on the, on planet earth? So good there's, point. it's sort of that what's, what's good is the, is the question at the same time, I think it's, it's interesting that this subject is broached because while, although her judgment, we could look at it from that very, very, um, analytical perspective that Coop has where it's, you know, the data, the data doesn't lie. Let's go with the data and, and can say, well, you know, this is just this, your emotions are clouding your judgment right now, but where so much research is being done now that shows that um, that we have another brain in our in our gut. We actually have a brain there too. How it's all it all coincides. It's not just analytical. How our emotions are involved. You know, there's this whole embodiment movement that's happening, and uh, just the, the, the world over right now. And it's only going to get bigger. But without going into that that topic too far, um, yeah, there's something to be said for for her intuition, for her gut. She is the only woman, and, and women have strong intuition. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, but at the same time, it's not quantifiable, and that's that's right, what they yeah. needed, right? Right, or at least that's what they thought they needed. I mean, yeah. I think it just proves that not all problems can be solved analytically by thinking mm-hmm. them through. Sometimes you have to trust your intuition. Karma, because then he gets get he, then Coop gets <laughs> he, bit in the ass does. by his decision. <laughs> <laughs> if they had found Edmund's planet and, you know, just settled there and whatnot, they would have gone through with plan B and, you know, Earth would have perished. But would would they have gone through with it or would they have, like, gathered the, the data and then tried to head back? Because that was, the, that was the original plan. They didn't have the fuel to. That's it. They had fuel, enough fuel to get off of the ice planet, right? Yeah, I, I, I'm trying to remember... Because I think it was that Coop was going back by himself or something like that. And the ice planet was further away. So they would have spent less fuel going to Edmund's planet. I can't remember which one was further, actually. but Would have been less fuel, but either way, I think Dr. Brand, uh, the, the senior, Dr. Brand Sr., um, knew that this was just a one-way mission. That was his intention. That was his yeah. mission. Yeah, like that was his understanding yeah. of the mission. He just didn't relay that to everyone because even Amelia didn't know about that. Yeah, but right. did Dr. You know? Man did. Did you know? So that leads me to believe that, uh, is this like an extension of the Lazarus Project? Was that the original intent of the Lazarus Project? And then like they kind of just modified it slightly for this one? Well, I think that was just part, like part, you know, phase A kind of thing. Because, you know, they sent scouts out to to scout out viable planets. And then phase B was when, you know, Coop and team went to go find which planet actually worked and then start plan B, which was actually plan A. That was very shrewd of Dr. Brand, right? To to like kind of like leave out important information like that. I know, so, so to backtrack a little bit, you know, we go back to Earth where Dr. Brand, a senior, uh, is dying. Professor Brand, I guess. And uh, Murph is there since Amelia can't be. 
And on his, you know, with his last dying breath, he basically confesses to her that plan B has indeed been plan A all along. That he solved, well, he solved what he could of the gra gravity equation a long time ago, but the last little piece of information he needed was inside the black hole, and he couldn't get it, and so that was that. No one knows what the hell is inside a black hole, so, yeah. It's virtually impossible to solve that equation. Yeah, and then, yeah, exactly, and so and so he passes away, and, you know, she what makes a... What a piece of shit. Right. So <laughs> she makes a, so uh, Murph makes a recording to send to... Amelia letting her know, like, hey, I'm so sorry your dad passed away. But then also, like, did you guys know that you guys are leaving us here to suffocate soon after you, you know, you find out, like, they're going on a, what, a scout mission to, to check out the surface of the planet, which is supposed to be, you know, below what they're on, which is, I don't know what, solid clouds? Some red flags immediately when they get to the planet because, I mean, they're flying down and it was a cool visual, but, like, the fact that, like, the sky looks like this the ground... Because yeah, the clouds the sky are frozen. Looks, yeah, a, the sky looks like the ground. They hit a cloud on the way down, and it and it right. breaks off a chunk of ice. Yeah, like what the hell? Uh, but then you know, uh, man's like, work? oh, it's it's. <laughs> I know, man's like, oh, it's you know, it's frozen, it's solid up here, but uh, there's a surface below us, and it's you know, it's amazing, and there's water, and there's this, and there's organics, and blah blah. But did blah, you blah. notice the other red flag when they? Uh, open the, the cryostasis chamber. They uh, essentially save Dr. Man. He's weeping in their arms. Well, you just assume that he just missed seeing another face. Right. I think that, I think that's what the audience is led to believe. But the fact that he was, he's like so fucking desperate. Yes, fucking I can get off this planet finally. And, yeah. um, but the thing is like, now he's going to have to concoct a plan because he's going to have to bullshit his way through whatever questions they have if they want you know tangible proof he's like how the fuck am i gonna do this so he has to like buy himself time to concoct a plan and oh man his plan's a doozy faked a bunch of data saying that the planet was promising and sent that out in in hopes that they would come to his planet sooner because it was so promising which exactly which is exactly what happened that was the plan but yeah. in reality there is no there was no surface under the surface that was amazing he lied about that just so that they would come and then he can either be saved or screw them over and just get off the planet, which is what <laughs> he ended up doing, killing Romilly and blowing up, explode, exploding. Uh, well, the, the one robot exploded. And so Case and Tars were still there, but right, the, right. Well, Kit, Kit like he was set to explode um, when tried, tried, when they tried to reboot, when he, they're like trying to reboot whom, him with anybody other than Dr. Right. Man, I'm assuming. Let's not gloss over the fact that this event was basically what made Matt Damon the most hated man on planet Earth for a while after this movie came out. Because everyone Change. legitimately hated Matt Damon for his character of Dr. Man. That's hilarious. Talk about such yeah, what, what a what a great job. Yeah, what a great job he did. I didn't realize that other people felt that way too, but I refuse to this day I still have not seen um what's that other movie he was in afterwards? The Martian. Mar the, the Martian, yeah. <laughs> I I refuse to see it. I would not watch him in space again. I was like, fuck that guy. He's a that way different really character. That's what I hear. Yeah. And he's the opposite. Sure, like, sure, but I still said fuck that guy. And I, I, I watched that movie actually and ended up uh, reading the book as a result. And that the book is really good too. So the book was good. Yeah. So, I read that yeah. one too. Recommend. I remember how I felt 
I think that is a testament of how good an actor Matt Damon is because he really made you hate his character. I know. His character is hateable. And he was like, he was totally awkward. He was like awkward and like, you know, science nerdy. And then he totally, you know, smashes in. He's totally like lying right to their faces. I mean, that's a, that's a cue in and of itself. He's covering it over by just constantly giving them a barrage of information. He just won't shut up about it. And he's, in a way, it's like, oh, it's understandable. You can look at it from the perspective of, well, he hasn't really had human contact in quite some time. So they're oh, looking awkward. at it through that lens, whereas he's just kind of like doing a little sleight of hand. He just needs to keep them busy, occupied with data, 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 um, and whatever else they may think that he, he thinks they need to know in order for him yeah. to keep the ruse going. I heard there was an actor who said that you don't need to... I think they played an antagonist as well, and they're like, look, I... I don't have to agree with the character. That's not my job. My job is to understand them. Mm. So it's not as though he agreed that this was the right, this is the best thing to do. Mm -hmm. It's more just, I understand. I understand where Dr. Man was coming from. Yeah. It was desperation. Yeah. Yeah. But to convey that on the screen, right. But to be able to, to make, to make that a reality, I don't know, like a story is only as good as its villain. And he plays one, at least for that portion of the film. Mm -hmm. And uh, it just makes it that much more, that makes it more, that much better for them to overcome yeah this movie has some interesting villains in it right so it's like the blight and then you have the uh the water on that planet yeah. and then now you have uh dr, dr. man as the, the villain planet. so it's like it, it's got a pretty like wide variety of different villains for this movie right dr brand even dr brand senior uh yeah right. that's true. being a villain because he lied to them in order for them to yeah colonize to elsewhere man so they they narrowly make it off of that too after romilly being killed you know, Brand Brand barely gets to saving Coop. That was such a fucking like sneaky little booby trap thing that he did. Right? Why did he feel the need to like set a trap for someone that's like attempting to access the data? That's wild. That he thought yeah. about this while he was on the planet alone. He needed to um he's controlling the information and that that is the only other witness, quote unquote, that he needs to keep silent. And so, mm-hmm. um, but keeping him alive m- meant something too. He, he didn't have to, he didn't want to necessarily kill. That would look bad if he had killed him. So he has to keep, again, this whole ruse. So it's like, this thing has information that would reveal the truth about his lies. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. if anybody then tries to act on that and retrieve it, then of course he's going to just seal the deal by killing that person for trying to get the information because they must then be, they might know something or they, you know, let the truth die with them and that. And that. They're about to know something. Yeah. And I think what makes Dr. Man even more villainous, so, you know, he, he tries to murder, flat out murder Coop when, when they're alone, right? Uh, away from the rest of the crew. Mm-hmm. And then, like, he starts almost lecturing him as he's suffocating. <laughs> and he's like, I'm sorry, I thought I could watch this. I can't. I, 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 I don't know. even want to hear so you. He's so awkward. So he, like, turns off his communicator. Yeah, yeah. Like, but again, so just awkward. seeming like he's sympathizing with him. Do you see your children? I heard that happens. Like he, he's fucking weird, dude. Yeah, he's so weird. He's so weird, yeah. and he's so desperate. He did a good job uh, uh, acting that one out, and then he gets dumb because you know he's he's so desperate to get away that he flies up to the endurance, tries to dock with it incorrectly. Tars's uh, trust setting was set low enough where he uh, enabled the autopilot docking, disabled mm. the autopilot docking which I thought was hilarious. And so he, he docks with it imperfectly. And they're like, they keep trying to tell him like, you know, don't dock, don't dock. And then when he finally does, they're like, don't open the hatch, don't open the hatch. And you'd think he would be smart enough to realize like, oh, if, he, if he's not docked perfectly, the hatch is going to blow. 
but it seems like only they, you know, only, you know, Brandon Coop and Tars got that. And somehow Dr. Man did not think of that. I mean, to be honest, I don't even know how any of that shit actually works. And I would assume that it's going to blow even if you dock perfectly. <laughs> no, I mean, because if you're docked perfectly, then the pressure will equalize. It's like sealed, when you open the yeah. hatch. Yeah, it's sealed. So the pressure will equalize between the ship and the, and the endurance. I've seen enough disaster flicks where it's like one screw is probably like loose and it just like falls out and the whole thing just caves exactly. in on itself. So, I mean, you would get like a, a, a an extremely rapid depressurization because there's a vacuum out in space which would cause it to blow i would assume but not explode because you don't have freaking you know explodies in space like there's no oxygen out there to make fire yeah so. i thought i thought he would have gotten sucked down to space I, I guess it did kind of just like everything just kind of broke and he got sucked out or whatever but then wasn't there like wasn't there some fire i feel like that i feel like something actually exploded and that that usually is yeah. you know like incorrectly you know conveyed in space because you know you don't have oxygen there's no oxygen space the flame would have gotten choked out um but anyway that blows an entire segment of the endurance and causes it spinning at 68 rpm 67 to 68 rpm thanks matt damon you son of a bitch yeah yeah you selfish bastard And which which leads okay, and here's where here's where it gets me because I I think this is hilarious, which leads Coop to initiate some more crazy ass maneuvers to get their ship spinning at the same rate as the Endurance so that they can successfully dock. You were th- saying that this portion of the movie was kind of dumb, right? Like you didn't quite believe it. Yeah, it was. I mean, I really had to suspend disbelief. I mean, you you kind of have to for everything in this movie because you know we don't have actual wormholes and. And black holes, or I mean, we have black holes, but right. like, we don't. We, we're not studying wormholes in real life, right? Um, so, if you know, Doctor Man was wasn't able to successfully dock when everything was like perfectly still, and yet Coop is able to spin his ship at the same rate as the other spinning ship, and then dock them perfectly together. It's plausible, right? I I'm not convinced. Well, he's got Tar's help. <laughs> I think he he just gets them like ninety percent of the way there. Ninety percent is all you need. I think I guess. he tells them to match it, right? Yeah. Doesn't he tell them match it, match, match the speed, and so it's like the calculating part of it is is taken out of it. That piece is. Yeah. And so the precision is done by Tars. Yeah. Good job, Tars. Mm. I'll give that one to Tars then. Tars, is, there's nothing Tars can do. He's basically R two D two. Seriously, I know that's true, but he can talk and he has settings and shit. But he can. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, they're they're successfully able to leave Hoth. With R2-D2's help. Oh, <laughs> that's, that's basically what that ice planet was, huh? Seriously. <laughs> um, this planet is also still close to the black hole. And so without the fuel, um, they come up with this brilliant plan where they're going to let the black hole start sucking them in. To get them closer, which is actually kind of genius. They're going to let the black hole start sucking them in and then turn on their thrusters to full at the same time dropping weight so that they can escape the pull of the black hole and then slingshot around it, which will propel them to Edmund's planet. Brand doesn't know is that she's being lied to yet again. They drop TARS and then they drop Coop. Because the plan with TARS is is so that way he can study the inside of the black hole and then relay the information out. Yeah. If that's possible. That, that's their plan. Yeah, that's their plan. Yeah, so they needed to drop more weight. And so they're like, you know what? Yep. Coop's like, I'll sacrifice myself. 
you know, we've already, we're, we're already losing 50 more years. I'm probably not going to see my kids again. And so he's like, I'll just sacrifice myself. Like getting that close to the black hole, they already calculated that they're going to lose 50 plus more years. I don't think they have any way of getting back. So it's like, if we can at least get you to Dr. Edmund's planet, then you can help us survive. Yeah. Which is interesting. Now that, now, now that you bring that up, that, that, that I, I noticed that uh, there was a line in the first part, the ghost part, where they bring up the Lazarus missions. And he says, oh, that sounds, that, that name sounds dubious. And he's like, well, Ra- Lazarus r- rose again. And he says, yeah, but he had to die first. Die. So yeah. that's why I'm like, oh, a callback. So, so he chose, so he willingly chose to die, to risk death at least. And, and, right. and then from the ash heap, life springs, right? So, so humanity is saved. They quote unquote rise again because of his willingness to die in the black hole. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Self-sacrifice. Yeah, so if, uh, this is where this is where it gets real. I mean, the, this is where it lost me the first time around because I was like, okay, first of all, first of all, he's going into the black hole, and as far as I learned in my uh, you know level one physics class, if you get sucked into a black hole, you get spaghettified, you get stretched into a single, you get turned into a strand of spaghetti because it's like oh, it, gets, it gets very small in there, or you just end up hearing black hole sun, won't you come? Don't go there. <laughs> not that song <laughs> i used to love that song but they played it out so much encore <laughs> um, love that song yeah so you're supposed to get spaghetti fried right so he goes into this black hole doesn't get spaghetti fried at all it's just you know going through it like it's an actual hole like like it's big um but a black the whole point of a black hole is like a lot of mass imploding into a single point the ship was getting shredded, right? So, like, it was telling yeah. him to eject. Would you have fucking ejected? I was like, I eject into what? I know. Like, eject into <laughs> getting yourself shredded? So, I was thinking the same thing. I, was- I thought I was as protected as I can be in this ship, and this ship is getting wrecked, and you want me to fucking, like, launch into it? Right? Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so, so mm-hmm. I was like, why the hell did he do that? So, he ejects into the black hole, and I guess is saved by the five dimensional beings he probably would have been spaghettified had the being the future human beings or whatever not created this tesseract for him which was like a safe space yes so he gets put into this tesseract which is a safe space created by these beings for him and the way that they explained it so a tesseract so you know how like a cube is the three-dimensional version of a square. The Tesseract is a four-dimensional version of a cube. Mm. So he's inside the Tesseract. And this is their attempt to... The the way that Tars... Well, he, he ends up getting back into contact with Tars, who's inside the black hole with him. And Tars somewhere. explains to him... <laughs> yeah, somewhere. Tars explains to him that he's with the beings, who which he cannot explain. But he's he calls them the bulk beings. And they have created a four-dimensional version of time for him. So that's how they made it, made it, made time perceivable for Coop. He can basically calculate anything and make sense of all the stuff through science, right? But he's surrounded by something that is like beyond our technology right now that he can't even like simplify it and explain it. He's just like, I, I don't know. It's just something that they created and we're here now. So well, there's that. Which is interesting because now he has to rely on the very thing that he was not trusting in uh, the younger Dr. Brand, which is her gut. 
He's got to trust yeah. in his gut now because he can't. His anal, his analytical mind isn't going to help him in this place. It doesn't make sense. He can't rationalize all this, so he just has to act on instinct. He can't even see these beings. Like these beings are helping him. He can't see him. And the the way that I had explained to me at some point in my life, when I was trying to understand what a, a an extra dimension would be like, is that imagine a drawing of a person on a piece of paper. So they're two D, right? Or maybe even just imagine a circle drawn on a piece of paper, but maybe it has an eye like Pac-Man. So this, this Pac-Man can see in front of it on the piece of paper and behind it also on that same piece of paper, but it can't see outside of the piece of paper where we are. And so that's us. We're, you know, we're, we're the, we're the circle on the piece of paper. Also at the same time, it's like, if, if this is some sort of fifth dimensional being, it's not going to have like a body because it doesn't need one. It's beyond that. It's beyond like space and time. It's like an essence of something. It's like in its own plane. Well, not necessarily. Mm -hmm. I mean that, you know, that Pac-Man on that piece of paper might think of us as an essence because it can't perceive what we would, what we would look like in a third dimension. You know, we can't perceive what a fifth dimension would be like, but. I think it would be easier to, to understand three dimensions than it would be to like. That's that's because we live in three dimensions. Supposedly they're humans. They're like future versions of us, right? Well, that's what that's what they're saying. Like they they might not necessarily be humans. They are a people. He says at the end they they are a people, not necessarily us people, but a people who have chosen to save us. And I think the reason why I'm able to kind of conceptualize it is because you get a hint of it if you've ever taken like shrooms or something like that. You get like a very small hint of it you understand what it is to like transcend our plane everything here makes sense to us but then once you see it from like a outside perspective you start understanding more about what life is and all that stuff and imagine just always being in that state being in that plane you're not bound by these laws down here that's why i kind of use like little bits of that and i think that's also why people that are like really intelligent and kind of like have these crazy theories and ideas they've probably seen similar things like that or like maybe even crazier things than that, that we can't even comprehend. That doesn't even make sense to us. And I think they might actually be closer to the truth than we give them credit to be. Sounds like someone knows from experience. Huh? <laughs> uh, because bit, yeah. because we, are, we, we have our own self-limiting beliefs, right? Not unlike, um, not unlike what I was mentioning before on the planet, before they make this whole trip, the people who um, in the textbooks say that we didn't make the, we did not have a lunar landing kind of thing, right? Right. These mm-hmm. self-limiting beliefs. Oh, I forgot to mention, this is part three, the black hole. And we're inside yeah. of it. Or should I call it the Tesseract? I keep changing my names. Oh, it sounds I'll cool. let you guys know. I know the Tesseract. Yeah. Not the Marvel Tesseract. No, not that no. one. That's just a cube. That's not a Tesseract. Yeah, that's um, stupid. <laughs> yeah, so then, you know, he's... Like, this is where it really lost me the first time I saw it. Because he found himself in many, many iterations of Murph's room behind the bookcase, right? And at the first time I saw it, I was like, why in the fuck is he in Murph's room? Like, why does this happen to be the spot that he ends up in? You know, like, why Murph's room? Why behind the bookcase? Like, why this? But see, it's always about Murph, too, as well. Yeah, exactly. And that, well, that's that's when, like, kind of Tars comes and explains it. And I don't know, like, if I, how I missed it the first time or if I just, I was just so confused that it wasn't like registering, but, but this time I actually got it when Tars came and explained it. And so he's like, you know, or when they were kind of, I guess they were kind of discussing it together and figuring it out together, like Coop and Tars, you know? And so Mm -hmm. Coop's like, 
oh, you know, she's been, it's not me. It's, it was her. She was chosen because he was assuming that he was chosen when he got the coordinates to NASA. Right. 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 Uh, it's been Murph all along. She was chosen and these bigger beings than us have chosen Murph. And like I mentioned before, they're trying to get this message to her, but couldn't. And so they had this tesseract of her time. Specific moments. Yeah, but they couldn't get the message to her, and that's what they needed Coop to do. And it's cool, too, because it's it's all relative to him and Murph's relationship. Yeah. So that's why it's showing a bunch of, like... It's all about their, their interactions. Yeah. yeah, because it's like he has to use one of those interactions to try to communicate in the past. Uh-huh. It's not like Cerebro, right? Where it's just, yeah. like, showing fucking everyone. Like, it's very focused, hyper-focused on just... Coop and Murph's relationship together and their interactions. And he's going to have to choose one of those. I mean, it showed other times too, where you you just see like Murph coming in and out of the room or whatever. Like as he was kind of floating through it, like it showed other times of her, just her too. Uh, But yeah, of course he focuses on the ones where he's involved. He has to rely on something that he knows a predictable response from her, you know, by him doing something, he's going to, he's going to start triggering events. Right. And, and I think it's, it's, it's like crucial that it happens at this point in, in, um, in her life because they formed those memories together. Those are some of her last memories of her dad because, uh, obviously he left and it broke her heart. So it's even more meaningful that, so it's almost as though, yeah, they knew they, the proverbial, they knew that he wasn't going to be back and, uh, that this was going to happen the way that it did because then, um, the pain of the loss of her father, was going to help her to really focus in on the message being conveyed. It would have more meaning because of that versus if he kind of stuck around, never, she never really felt that pain of him being gone for years and years. Yeah. And that's what I was wondering earlier was like, would she have become this great scientist had Coop not left? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was, it was kind of interesting too, because if she had such a big grudge against her dad, why did she, get closer to him by like joining the same organization that he's working for. Maybe it was to feel closer to him. Close enough to him, but like still doesn't want to like let him know that she's there. She's just like, no, like I'm not ready for that yet, but I'll, I still want to be yeah. close to you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And maybe they, maybe they keep her on too. Maybe they know that she can help that she's really smart, you know? True. I think she essentially, she fills the void of Amelia being gone because Amelia yeah. was, was brilliant too. So like you have another brilliant daughter coming in. She was able to fill this role and even exceed the capabilities that Amelia even had. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So Michael, take us home. We're in this Tesseract. What, what's going on? <laughs> I thought that was so interesting. Again, just going back to what we were saying before about how it's kind of just accepted that he's manipulating gravity, you know, so he's reaching in, he's got these bookshelves and he's looking at her through, um, through these bookshelves and he's like moving the books themselves or how is he, how is he playing these strings of gravity? So to speak, I forget how, uh, I I mean, it does feel kind of ghost like at first when he's just like, he's like, it's like an emotional thing and he's just shoving these books, you know? Right. And he's like, but he's like flick, flicking these different things, right? Yeah. The gravity strings. And yeah. And then it does feel more like an instrument later when he's manipulating the watch or manipulating the, the dirt. He's able to like really harness the capabilities of it. Once he takes the time to like understand it. And then little by little, he starts being able to like manipulate more things. So he's just like, Oh shit. 
I can do more stuff with this, you know? And so he, he has to get creative with it. Mm-hmm. And he does. Yeah. He, he learns how to, to play that instrument a little bit better. The instrument of time and space. And gravity. Which is interesting because um, when you talk about the, uh, the music of the, of the heavens, um, that's been around since, you know, ancient, ancient Greece. They talk about the music, about there being music. If there are vibrations, anything moving through space is going to have a vibration. And how if we're moving through space with, as, as planets and the planets are rotating, they're creating vibrations as well. So I thought that was really interesting that they made it look like as an instrument that he's playing mm. yeah. in the Tesseract. That makes sense. Coop imparts to Murph the information she needs to solve Dr. John Brand's gravity equation. Yeah, it turns out that uh, Tars is hanging out with the bulk beans, and uh, he he is able to. Is that the pearly gates? He's able to get get the information <sighs> he needs to get, and he gives it to uh, Coop in Morse for him to give to Murph in Morse. I love this question because it was so emotional and. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's a logical question. Like, why the watch? How do you know she's even going to see it? And what does he say? Because I gave it to her. <sighs> Got me. Got yeah. Me. I was just oh, like, yeah. fuck. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Man. It's pulling out the heartstrings as well. Not, not just time and space. Oh, it's not pulling just out the, the, the gravity strings, but the heartstrings are being played also. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. He's a... He's, uh... And then we could get into like things like love transcends distance, love transcends love transcends time. True, <laughs> literally, yeah. it does. Yeah. Right? If you think about it, it's yeah. it's he's transmitting it outside of time to her, and uh, and the love that she feels for him is is being received on both. The love between the two is being received Aww. on both ends. And again, it comes back to what I was saying before about how about how without her missing him for those all those years that he was gone, it would not have had the impact on her that this gift that he gave her had. Yeah. Because I gave it to her. Yeah. yeah. Because I gave it to her. God damn it. Yeah. Don't cry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, after he programs that, the Tesseract begins to collapse and close in on itself. Right. And, okay, so here's here's another, I mean, all this stuff is purely speculation since no one actually knows what's inside a black hole. No one actually knows what's outside of our dimension. And so it seems like the beings, the they, deliver Coop and Tars back through the worm, outside of the black hole, back through the wormhole. And they are both found orbiting Saturn. By themselves. (laughs) By themselves in the middle of space. With just minutes left in Coop's oxygen, he is rescued. And below us. Gotcha. <laughs> All right, so Major Tom is rescued. Unlike the song. <laughs> this is, you know, 50-some plus years in the future after Murph has solved the equation, which, as far as I've understood it, based on, it looks like, uh, what, was, what was that guy, that the science guy that was involved in the movie, the one of the executive producers? Oh, uh thorn yes yeah yeah kip thorn um so he wrote a book about the science behind this movie and it's if i understand it correctly the whole point of the the gravity equation was to discover how to overcome the gravity of the earth so that they can get something as big as an entire space station 
populated by a lot of people off of the earth. Yeah, because imagine something that large and it's like trying to lift off and like the resources it would take to do that. Right. Yeah, that's not gonna that's not gonna it would take an immense amount of fuel that the earth probably doesn't have to just get one of those things off the planet. Oh, yeah. So this equation is like it half possible. of the, the world's population. Yeah, exactly. I, I would assume that their population is smaller than what we have. Yeah, currently. Was, I think it was cut down by, you know, times 10 or something. But anyway, you know, yeah. that that equation makes it possible for them to get these stations off the earth. So um they're able to get several of these stations off of the planet and in orbit around saturn which is where you know 51 years later they just randomly find coop floating in space it is modeled after that like space station that dr brand designed right yeah that's what i thought yeah it's just a tube it's a tube yeah and the inside of the tube you live on the the inside of the tube yeah it's kind of interesting it's almost like a similar concept to uh, Elysium. Um, Elysium, yeah. So it's that's a disc yeah. where you're like on the inside of the edge. Yeah, the edge of the disc, which is also cool. It's just a really mm. tiny tube at that point. <laughs> Anywho, they call the station that Coop's on is called Coop Station, Cooper Station, named after not him, but Murphy Cooper. <laughs> that was pretty funny. He's just like, "Oh, that's nice of you guys to name it after me." They're like, "No, no, no, <laughs> calm that down, sir." <laughs> That was cool that they they essentially just ripped up the farmhouse and stuck it on the space station and they turned it into a museum. Yeah. Was it the actual farmhouse or did they just recreate it? Because he was talking about how he like um, confirmed the details with Murph and stuff like that. Yeah, I thought it was the actual house because I mean, like, how many resources do you think it would take to just pick up this like house? Yeah, you know, that's and, like, true. Drop it on their space station. <laughs> Probably not a lot. They I don't think a few that's going to be much extra it. weight. Yeah, Speaking exactly. of cars. Uh, they, they they found Tars also in space and recovered him too, which was cute. Imagine the huh. information they can pull off of him. Right? That's wild. Because they would be able to get the black hole data off of him too. Like anything that, you know, mm-hmm. it wasn't it wasn't part of the gravi- gravity equation or whatever. Whatever they can kind of understand of the Tesseract as well. Yeah, exactly. So, they, yeah, they probably got all kinds of fun information and were able to advance technology quite a bit from whatever Tars had on board. And then we get to the final emotional scene of the movie. Reunion. The reunion of Coop and Murph. On her deathbed. Oof. And she's like, how old is she now? Like 90 something? 100? Who knows? But she's she's on her deathbed and she's surrounded by her children and grandchildren. He's been gone that long. Yeah. I'm glad that they finally got to see each other, though. There's some closure there. Yeah, right. exactly. Right. And they, you know, they were able to meet with love and stuff. When he, when she finally realizes that he, he's been her ghost all along, which how did she realize mm-hmm. it was her dad? I don't know, but you know, she realizes that it was him all along, and that he has not really left and has been trying to come back at the same time all along. I think she realized when she, her and uh, and Eric Foreman, oh god, went to the farmhouse. <laughs> Eric Foreman. <laughs> I mean, but how, how did she realize? I mean, like how, like she, all of a sudden she, I mean, she's just looking at the books and she's like, Oh my God, it was you. I think again, it's like a different state of mind. Right. So like, she's more open to these like spiritual concepts now. Mm -hmm. And I think it it didn't seem so far fetched that there's a specific way of that. He was communicating with her and it was like with specific things, like it was her room and it Mm -hmm. was this watch. 
And it's like, who else would have known the significance of this watch? And it was her dad. Yeah, I mean, she figured out it was the dad before the watch. But yeah, I mean, regardless, moving on, you know, um, I think she's able to let go of her grudges at that point because she realizes that everything that she was holding on to wasn't true, that he left her, that he wasn't coming back, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's about time. I know, right? (laughs) Imagine if she still Mm. had a grudge. Like, no, don't talk to me. I know. I don't want to talk to you. You left. Mm-hmm. You left like a hundred mm-hmm. years ago. Yeah, so thankfully they're able to <laughs> like a hundred to reconcile, and you know he she tells him you know like you need to go, and he's like where, and she's like to Brand like she's you know you got to go back through that wormhole and help her set up this planet that you know it's for us to repopulate. So plus she's gonna be there by herself. Like l- most likely, Doctor Edmonds like. Well, it shows, yeah, it shows that from old age or whatever. Well, I mean, she didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Well, so she, I mean, it shows her, you know, flashes of her while she's telling him to go. It shows flashes of Brand on this planet, and she finds Edmund's camp, and you can see, like, in the background, like, you can see greenery, and you can see, like, clouds in the sky, so you know it's a it's a decent planet. And but then you see her, you know, so you see a little mound of rocks, and she puts like Edmund's plate on it, and so yeah, you know, she, he's she gone. was the one that had to bury him. Yeah. That must have sucked that finding sucks. his body. <laughs> the how decay. The love of your been. life, you know, and you have to bury him. That's crazy. But yeah, then he's gonna go join her uh, there, and Murph was also saying no parents should have to see their child die, which and is so... absolutely true. But regardless, I mean, you know, it's gonna happen. He should have stayed. I, yeah. He should have spent as much time as he could with her, learning about her. Like, tell me what happened, you know, Trying while to begin I was gone. Some of that time that was lost. But I mean, as a, yeah. you know, as a parent myself, even if, regardless of the fact that, you know, it's definitely true, no parent should ever have to see their child die. But if they have to die, wouldn't you want to be holding them? Like, wouldn't you want to be, like, making them yeah. feel safe and loved and. And he missed out either. on everything else. The least he could do is be there for her on her final breath. Yeah, and then she was like, you know, I have it's okay. I have my children and my grandchildren around me. And he's like, all right, that's cool. And then he goes, peace. I don't know you anyway. You're you're you don't look like my little Murph. Uh, yeah, you geezer. <laughs> <laughs> Messed up, guys. You know, you'd have been sad if, like, he asked her so many questions that she just dies of annoyance, like Yoda. <laughs> if that could happen, then I would have, I would have died a long goes time into ago. the force, slips away. It's like, it's like a, you know, um, what do you call it? It's like, um, curb your enthusiasm. <laughs> He's just like yammering, and she's just like slipping away, like staring off into space. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sure there's like an edit out there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. It's funny because I thought it was odd that the family doesn't even really acknowledge him. I mean, I mean, there has to be some photograph or something like that of of him of I mean, their grandfather. Like a whole museum. Right. That should have been part of history. But he like just kind of slips out. None of them really pay him any mind. They're all focused on her, and he kind of just like slips out, and they don't really like yeah. turn and look at him. Like, oh, yeah. hey, hey. No one shakes his. No one shakes his hand. It's just kind of like. I know you think they would like applaud when he walked in or something like that, but nothing. They just like quietly leave so they could have their moment alone together and they quietly come back. No balloons, no ice cream cake, nothing. I know. What the heck? Mm -mm. And you don't see any of their faces or anything, I think. Not really. Yeah. Yeah. At least nothing, nothing memorable. They're not really important. Just to her. That's, that's her story. 
what's cool about this though is that those are essentially like arcs right like Noah's arcs so yeah. they they don't have to fully rely on plan b like they have these space stations that are actually carrying other generations of people yeah. and so they can just like you know mix them in as well and the new generation doesn't have to completely be raised by robots yeah interesting i okay so that's right that's right you mentioned that it's Coop Station or Cooper Station? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's just one of them. Right, because I remember thinking, like, how are they going to fit everybody? How, how are they fitting everybody on this one, in this one look, tube looking thing? Now yeah. that you mentioned that, I'm like, oh, okay, that's right. They have many, many of them. So, all right. It's just interesting that they haven't sent anybody out to the planet with, with uh, Dr. Brand at all. Just all of a sudden, just, you go. <laughs> well, go find here's her. the thing. Like, what, why didn't anybody else? They just now recovered Coop which means Brand is just now getting to that planet also because she lost those 51 years or 50 however many years also slingshotting around the the black hole you know everything Uh, everything's all happening at that time now it's not like you know Brand's been chilling on that planet waiting for somebody for 50 something years no she's barely getting there too finding you know what's his face is 50 something year old decayed body Edmonds which is what it appears to be yeah so that makes sense yeah, like she just got there and she didn't really get to do much. Exactly. She she's just getting there finding finding Edmund's fifty year old dead body and or maybe he died from old age. He might have died there from old age, you know. Took her helmet off for the first time, yeah. you know, and breathes in. And it the seems air, like so. I mean, when you when you mm-hmm. see her walking back to the camp, it seems like that camp is pretty established. So yeah, he probably died of old age there. Like he lived there, you know. Yeah. Alone for a long time, probably crazy, but Yeah. Add fifty one years to whatever he was but when he got there. That's also a bittersweet ending too, because it, it's kind of sweet in the sense that they were playing up like a possible love interest in Amelia for Cooper, right? right? But like, also at the same time, imagine the relationship that Amelia could have had with Doctor Edmund. I know. Only last name, like he has no first name. We already established <laughs> that part. Yeah. Makes it easier. <laughs> that is a wrap on Interstellar and our anniversary episode. If you made it to the end of our podcast, then you get to punch Matt Damon in the face for being a lying, scheming asshole. (laughs) S-O-B. Poor Matt Damon. (laughs) He's probably a cool guy. Yeah, he probably is. Any final thoughts or closing comments? Great movie. I'm glad, um, you know, because knowing that we were going to be doing Interstellar, I I was kind of dreading it, actually, because, you know, the first time I saw it, I was just kind of like, eh you know the parts i didn't get at the end but i'm really glad that i was able to watch it a second time and that i actually was able to get a lot more out of it than i did the first time because i definitely enjoyed it a lot more and i definitely plan to give it another watch it's funny you felt that way because i also felt that way i was i was a little intimidated to take on this movie because i wasn't sure if we would be able to do this movie justice you know like i wanted right Mm -hmm. i hope we did i feel like we did yeah the funny thing is like i felt the opposite i was like uh is this movie worth it but you know having seen it again now i get the hype it was dang good Mm. how'd you feel about it michael i uh yeah i guess similar sentiments of uh thinking like are we going to do this movie justice it feels you know there's a lot of obviously a lot of science involved and and everything a lot of stuff that we're not qualified to talk about really <laughs> right right but then but then but then if you think about it there's a lot that we are qualified to talk about just being human right and just talking right. about the human struggle because that's what really matters most sure the, there's the science aspect and you know um 
we're not going to present, you know, present certain insights about the science that, that aren't already out there that people could look up, yeah. up that are, you know, professionals and whatnot. But, but what we can do is provide our own insights and, and how we empathized with the characters and the impact that it made on us and, and sharing that, sharing that in this, in this, um, in this way and in a podcast is, uh, in some way, not unlike music, right. To know that somebody else has felt this way before, you know, feel so alone or, or again, to get another perspective, but maybe, maybe there were people who were like, I don't get the hype about this movie. Like, like you were saying before Smurf. Um, but maybe, maybe they hearing this podcast might have a different perspective. Yeah, exactly. And special shout out to, Einstein for relativity. <laughs> no one ever mentions that. <laughs> I suppose he can get some credit. Some credit. I'll allow it. This movie truly is a masterpiece, though. I mean, in my opinion. And, man, I just gained so much more this time around, honestly. Theoretical stuff and philosophical. Whereas, instead of just, like... Trying to understand what the hell's going on. Yeah, I'm, like, getting a deeper meaning, and I'm able to look past certain things and and be curious about other things whereas like before i just i would always gloss over that stuff it's a lot of fun yeah 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 almost just accepting your your ignorance as as a closed door so to speak right it's like oh i can't get beyond this thing this is above me and uh whatever i'm not interested in this let's get to space that's nice okay whatever dust okay we get we get it it's dusty all right let's go to space (laughs) you see that water world yeah you know where there's no dust in space (laughs) in space ironically right they go to this planet and it's water as opposed to all this dust yeah it's like the opposite of earth at that time too much water right exactly too too much oh whoa, whoa, whoa time out time out too much water guys um yeah i i think that seeing it in theaters makes all the difference. I know that it had that impact on me when I saw Interstellar because you are you are in this room with, you know, all these other people um sharing the having this shared experience while it it is dark in that room. It's very different than being sitting down. You know, when I was watching this, I was watching it on my iPad at the kitchen table and I turned on as many lights as I could, but it's not mm. the same as being in a theater that has, you know, speakers tuned to a certain way and 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 bass and feeling it like like, uh, yeah. You're not feeling the Hans. You're not feeling the Hans. It, it, it reaches into you in a way that I mean, when you're watching something at home, you know, you get distractions. You know, if, if you have kids and kids might be asking, might have needs. You know, you might need to feed them. They might need to go to the bathroom. You know, never know. Have but a lot of needs. Either way, distractions abound whether you have kids <laughs> or not. And, you know, your phone. I might have kids. You might have. <laughs> a, a couple. Yeah. A couple. One or two or three. I think that. And I, I hope, I guess, that movies never die in theaters because um, going to that space, again, you're not just watching it by yourself like I was on my iPad. You're having this shared, this collective shared experience. Like, uh, again, like when I remember, uh, hell, just watching a, a scary movie, for instance, I mentioned um, seeing The Exorcist when it was re-released in theaters back in the, I think it was either late 90s or early 2000s with my pops and how there was this one scene that happened that had not, that had at that point not been seen before this was this had deleted scenes now included in the movie so this was the first time it was it was re-released all that jazz like the extended version precisely precisely um and it just added so much more but but what i'm getting at is that experience of being in that room with all these people there's that energy right everyone we have all these vibrations going on and emotions and uh and for them to kick on the lights it was so intense a scene people screamed women screamed and and i just remember it was it was really really intense so to you know if you think that 
oh, it's just, you know, people are annoying. Yeah, sometimes there are movie talkers. Yeah, sometimes people have their phone still on and there's all that stuff. Yeah. But but those are, again, those are not the norm per se. No. Uh, and I don't think that it discredits the the beauty of going to the movie theaters and experiencing that. I mean, that's that's what I grew up with a lot. I mean, we did watch a lot of movies at home, but my pops, all, that was like a, it was like a, almost like a religious experience. It was, and it was regular. We would go to the movies and watch this, these movies and, and, it was just so it's so moving, you know. Being a, a a pretty big Nolan fan, there are certain things I, I tend to notice with his movies, though, and I I noticed it with this movie as well. Is that he will spend a lot of time on certain things. I almost feel like he might spend too much time on them, forcing him to rush other elements of his movie. Like in this one, I noticed that he rushed a few parts of the movie. At least I felt that way. The part on the water planet, they only really spend like what five minutes of like screen time on that planet, and I felt like they should have drawn that out. Like I would have loved to make it seem like this could possibly be a dope planet to to inhabit. You know, they like land and immediately have to leave, and I felt like it would have been cool to like draw that out and make it and like give you that false sense of security. Um, also, the part that they rushed is obviously the reunion with Coop and Murph. They should have drawn that way out like i i don't know no, it, that's too sad they didn't spend any time with that and i was really disappointed with that yeah definitely glossed over but i gotta wonder um what scene i mean i gotta imagine that there was more filmed for that and that they just didn't they chose not to uh, you know they left it on the editing floor i guess sure uh no i see that scene i mean i could see where you're coming from but i i disagree about the water planet i think that it was meant as a device if you look at it from more if you look at it from like bird's eye view that scene was, um, they needed desperately to get off. What's the worst thing that could possibly happen? They needed to get down there and get the fuck back, right? Like time is of the essence. And then um, the worst thing that could possibly happen, they get stuck there longer than they needed to. So then there's this agitation. So I get your interest. I could see it more like a fan fiction thing. Like what if, kind of, I wonder what that planet was like. But I see it as a device to create pressure, to create tension. Just a couple more minutes would have done it for me. Oh, I see. Okay. But yeah, I feel like, I think he glosses over a lot of things, like he feels that they aren't that important, or you don't really need to, we don't need to stay on this too long, and he also doesn't explain a lot of things, so you kind of have to just speculate. That That is something that I do notice in a lot of Christopher Nolan movies. I like it because, I, I like that he does that, because if you spend too much time explaining things, the more that you know, the more that you begin to kind of tear it apart. Uh, it's very much like he films very much like Casablanca, like the movie Casablanca was filmed, where they bring up some stuff, but they don't go too much into detail about explaining the extraneous things, because then, because then your mind starts to work on it, right? And he's like, I don't want you to go down that path too much. Well, are you guys watching anything lately, film or TV? I'm catching up on Mrs. Maisel. Ooh, nice. The final season. Yes. It's good. I like the the time jumps, how they go yeah, back in time, present time, forward in time. And you know what everyone should watch? The Martian. Ooh. Ooh. So off the path. How do you guys feel about Matt Damon now? Uh, I think enough time has passed. Time heals all wounds, right? I'm still holding a grudge <laughs> like Murphy. <laughs> all I have to do is rewatch, you know, Born Identity and everything's good. Everything's right in the world again. The What I'm watching right now... Uh, two things um episodes for the show that i'm that i'm really that, that's newer right now um come out on wednesdays and that's platonic it's on apple tv mm. plus 
and it is hilarious. It's Seth Rogen and Rose Byrne, and uh, yeah, it's just it just cracks me up. Thirty minute long episodes, and uh, it's yeah, it's been nice. It's been pretty good. I, I recommend it. And the other one that I just started yesterday, um, or restarted, I should say, is uh, the FX show Legion that ran three seasons. It started <gasps> oh, in twenty fifteen. Fucking thank you. I, I, it's the most underrated. It's the most Seriously. fucking underrated show. It's up there with Hannibal. Only both only ran three seasons, by the way, and both are it's so fucking epic. I, I have posters for both, and I don't have movie posters typically, but I do have a poster for Hannibal and a poster for for Legion because truly the greatest antagonist, the greatest antagonist. Were they able to wrap up Legion, or did it get canceled? No, they wrapped Absol- it up. No, no, no. It was it was. It was beautifully wrapped up. It, so it's, it was intended it's, to be three seasons. Yes. It's a mindfuck of a show. The sure only is. unfortunate thing was that it, it came out when... Uh, see, now Hannibal had, was kind of rushed. I think they wanted more seasons. Uh-huh. But it's beautiful the way that it ends as well. There's there's possibilities there. I can respect the fact that TV shows don't want to be like 10 seasons long. Like, you know, you're, you only have like a finite amount of seasons and you wrap it up in a way that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Even Succession ended after four seasons and they could have drawn that out if they wanted to. But, but truly Legion is like, it, it always left me wanting more. And, um, and it's just, again, it's a, it's a mind trip. It's a mind fuck. I don't want to get into it now because yeah. uh, I don't think people are prepared for those spoilers, but right. um, okay. it is, it is up there as one of my all time favorite shows up there with, with Twin Peaks, Mad Men, and obviously Hannibal. Um, mm-hmm. There's so much depth to these characters and the worlds that this, this it's, it's unlike any Marvel movie or TV show you've seen. I think that's the unfortunate part is that everyone was already getting pretty fatigued right. on, on the Marvel yeah. universe when it came out. It's surprising every time I watch it and violent. Mm-hmm. Surprisingly pretty violent. Oh yeah, yeah, that's true. Okay. It's so good. First you had my curiosity. Now you have my attention. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we need to do an episode on, on Legion for sure. I did watch one thing. Uh, Brenda and I saw No Hard Feelings, and it was actually pretty funny. Like, I haven't seen a raunchy comedy in a while, and it was it was actually pretty refreshing. That's good. I, I've been kind of missing them, you know. And uh, Jennifer Lawrence still got it, and I mean, yeah. she still got it. <laughs> yeah, she do. Affliction Autos is available wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop on the first Saturday of each month, five a.m. Pacific. If you enjoy our content, give us a like, a thumbs up, and don't forget to subscribe. Thank you so much to the listeners out there for joining Stephanie, Michael, and I. This has been Affliction Hours Podcast, Episode 28, Interstellar. And we will see you all again in 60 years without having Asia Day. That was <laughs> stellar. Arrivederci.